Welcome to Hudson Institute. I'm Brigham McCown, Senior Fellow and Director of the American Energy Security Initiative here at Hudson. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this is a very important event, and uh, as many of you know, Monday marked the 50th anniversary of the Arab oil embargo from 1973 as a result of America's support of Israel during the Yom Kippur War. So our topic today is both timely and in light of uh, the tragedy unfolding in the Middle East. We are nonetheless pleased that you can join us today. Um, my role is somewhat limited. I have the uh, unique uh, opportunity to introduce the first panel. Uh, we're very pleased to be joined uh, uh, here by our keynote speaker, uh, Mike Summer, CEO and President of the American Petroleum Institute. Welcome, Mike. We're happy to have you with us here today. And then I will be back for panel number two after everybody is tired and full from eating lunch today. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce your, uh, your first moderator, uh, Dr. Arthur Herman, and I never really call you doctor, but I'm going to do that today. Uh, a senior fellow at Hudson Institute and author of 10 books, including Freedom's Forge, How American Business Produced Victory During World War II, in which The Economist named one of its best books in 2012. But you're also uh, the author of the Pulitzer Prize finalist Gandhi and Churchill, and a prolific writer. He served on the National Security Council as senior advisor to the National Security Advisor and uh, is uh, well regarded here and somebody that I always listen to. Arthur, the floor is yours. Please. I am, um, I'm, I'm moderating this panel. And uh, I'll introduce our two panelists once we get, once we get ensconced. You can actually use our stairs over there, which might be easier. But either way. Please. Anyway, I want to um, reiterate Briggs, my colleague Brigid McCown's um, uh, words of welcome and appreciation for coming here, and also to our, our keynote speaker, Mike Summers from American Petroleum Institute, uh, who is also uh, a graciously uh, decided to, that it was time to sit in on this panel as well. What we're going to be doing today, which you'll notice, is, is that there's going to be a kind there, there's going to be a division of labor, uh, a division of labor chronologically, thematically, but not necessarily in a policy sense. That our first panel is to talk about the historical context and the events that surrounded this event, this event that. Henry Kissinger described as one of the pivotal moments in modern history, which was the decision in October of 1973 by the leading members of the Organization of Oil Exporting Countries to raise the price of oil um, in dramatic fashion and also to impose an embargo uh, on those countries which were supporting Israel at the, in, the, in the first, in the opening weeks of the Yom Kippur War. Um, this was, in many ways, one of the pivotal uh, events, not just in terms of Middle East politics, yeah. which we'll be talking about, but also in terms of the global economy. Uh, because it was not only the United States and the West that felt the impact of this, of this decision to raise 
the price of oil. And just to give you some perspective of what that, what that price rise represented, that in January of 1973, before the oil embargo, you were looking at, uh, for, for Arabian light crude, you were looking at about $2.50 a barrel. Uh, by January of 1974, after the embargo and after the price rise, um, the price of oil was over $11 a barrel. That sent shockwaves across the global economy in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, in one country after another. Plans that had been built around, around economic development based upon cheap and accessible fuel, especially oil, the driving, the driving engine of the global economy. All had to be revised, all had to be drastically changed, and in many cases, disastrously so. This is why um, in Europe, and we talk about the oil, about the, the oil embargo and its effect, and we think about gas lines, we think about um, the, 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 the possible use of military action uh, in order to seize the oil fields that would be necessary to keep the American economy going. But in Europe, in Asia, in Japan, they still talk about it as the great oil shock because of the drastic and sudden effect that it had on them. Now, as we, as we know, and as Brig mentioned, so much of what is happening today, right now, has echoes of what took place 50 years ago. Uh, not only with the Yom Kippur War, but also with the economic consequences of U.S. policy in the Middle East and the way in which the balance of power in the Middle East has a direct effect, direct effect on the global economy as well as the ability of that economy to fuel itself at various prices. And if you think the question of an oil of Arab oil embargo is only of historical interest, bear in mind that just this morning the Palestinian foreign minister called for Arab countries to embargo for oil and natural gas Israel uh, in, the, in the midst of the Hamas conflict here. Basically calling for the Arab oil embargo 2.0. So these are issues aren't going away and the questions that we're going to be talking about, that we're going to be talking about in this panel are ones that help us to set the stage to understand where we are now, what happened then, where we are now, but also where we're going. So let me say something real quick about our two panelists, introduce them to you. Um, uh, our special guest is uh, Robert Hayat, um, who is uh, 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 someone that I wanted to have on this panel as being one of the uh, eyewitnesses to much of what we have talked about and what, has ha what happened 50 years ago during that 1973 crisis. Born in Tehran, um, Mr. Hayat's grandfather served in the cabinet of Dr. Mossadegh uh, in the Iranian government, the man who nationalized the oil industry in Iran in 1951, and who was president of the Supreme Court of Iran before the Iranian Revolution. As for Mr. Hayat himself, after earning a civil engineering degree from London University, he returned home to Iran to work for the National Iranian Oil Company, NIAC, as project and contract engineer before becoming head of the contract department of NIAC, and finally, the director general of engineering and contract division for the National Iranian Oil Company. His last appointment before the Iranian Revolution in Iran 
was as head of the Iranian trade representative for Europe in Vienna, Austria, which is also, of course, the headquarters of OPEC. After the Iranian Revolution, Mr. Hayats moved to the UK and then to the United States, where he's been living for the past 44 years. In addition to being involved in a number of business, philanthropic, and, business, and development projects, including the renovation of the Azerbaijan gas system in the 1990s. Joining myself and, and Mr. Hayat is our own Jonathan Schachter, who is with Hudson's uh, uh, Center for Middle East, policy, uh, Middle East Strategy and Peace and Security, and, and security uh, as well, who we're also very happy to have here uh, and to help fill in some of, the, some of the blanks when it comes to the history of the events of, of uh, in 1973. In fact, Jonathan, do you want to kick us out and then how to say a few words about that? Then I'm going to ask you to speak for a little bit, give us some general background as well. Thank but, you for that introduction. Absolutely. Jonathan? Yeah, thank you. Um, you hear me okay? Okay. Um, you know, in preparing for, uh, for this morning's event, um, maybe I was, maybe sort of the subject matter put me in a late 60s, early 70s uh, uh, state of mind. But it, it made me think of uh, the moon landing. And you know, when, they, when they talk about the moon landing, and specifically the re-entry uh, into the Earth's atmosphere, I remember learning that you know, so the angle of approach uh, for the re-entry vehicle, there was like a window of like, it was like one degree or two degrees or something like that. And anything that deviated from that, then the whole thing would, would burn up. And I thought of that because the number of factors that sort of lined up just right for this to take place is, is pretty remarkable. And I'm, I'm thinking about it in terms of um, sort of political and, and, um, and economic terms, both in the region, but also in, in the United States. And uh, there are a few things that I, I just wanted to uh, point out along, along those lines. So the first is, you know, we're in the post-1967 Middle East, and that really puts us on a historical seam between the, you know, the rise and the peak of what was known at the time as pan-Arab nationalism, where you have this sort of idea of a, of a greater uh, unifying Arab nationalism on the one hand, but we're seeing at this point in time a transition away from that where 1967 is seen in many ways and in many circles as a defeat of the idea of pan-Arab nationalism because of, uh, because of uh, the Israeli victory in 1967. And we're seeing a move toward more focused interests at the national level rather than at the pan-national level. And we see that specifically, I think, in Egypt, um, aside from uh, the war, you also have the death of Nasser, the, uh, the rise to power of uh, Sadat, uh, who was thinking along these lines, I think, very uh, explicitly. You have going on in the interim between uh, Egypt and Israel, you have in 1969, 1970, you have what's come to be known as the War of Attrition, which every time you read about the War of Attrition, it's described as the war that nobody remembers and nobody talks about. Um, but it was um, sort of a, a prolonged uh, but intermittent hot war between Israel and Egypt, um, sort of around the canal, but 
um, not limited to the canal. And one of the, the outcomes of that war was uh, increased Soviet involvement uh, in Egypt, which I think also is an important part of the stage setting here for what became the, uh, the embargo. Um, at the same time, you have uh, in the US, you have the US reaching uh, capacity of domestic production. And so what had been uh, uh, available previously is now no longer available. You're, you're, the US is in a position where it has to uh, import uh, from abroad. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and this is happening as demand, of course, is rising. You have the uh, erosion, and, and I would say right at this time, at the same time, you have the crumbling of the previous arrangements between the producers uh, and uh, the oil companies. And I think uh, my colleagues here will be able to speak to that much more uh, authoritatively than I can. Um, and then you also have uh, domestic US politics, because this is also going on with uh, Watergate in the background and things that are, are clearly uh, uh, dominating the attention of, uh, of the White House. Um, finally, you have, um, going back to uh, Sadat for a moment, you have Sadat um, has um, at least one um, meeting in advance of the war with uh, Faisal uh, in Saudi Arabia, um, and apparently brings him into the the, the very close circle of, uh, of people who, who know the secret of the, the war plans, that there's going to be a war, and Faisal is, is sort of, he's, he's brought on board and, uh, and sees uh, this opportunity. So you, you have, when you take all these things together, you know, the, the stars line up just right where you have, I think, um, a unified Arab voice, or at least a unified enough Arab voice uh, to make this possible. Um, and we can, I, I don't know if we'll talk later about sort of how these things look today as opposed to, uh, to then, that is met up with uh, a unique opportunity to have leverage uh, over the United States um, because of its energy needs, because of its domestic politics, and so on and so forth. Um, and like I said, I think we'll talk more later about lessons learned and what was done afterwards, um, because I think some players learned the lessons and other players seem to have not learned the lessons. Um, but I think that's, um, that's maybe more for, for later today. So all this by way of saying, these are the one to two degrees of, uh, of uh, approach that there were all of these things lined up just right in order to make, I think, this moment where the embargo was possible um, and as effective uh, as it turned out to be. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, by the way, for those of you who are interested in grabbing some more background on this, particularly with regard to U.S. policy and energy policy at the time and before, uh, I can recommend um, the report Am I allowed to recommend my own report? I guess I do. Uh, my own Hudson report, which is available back over there, and I see some of you have it at the desk. But it provides some of the background, domestic policy background for much of this discussion. Whereas we're going to keeping the focus on the international dimensions, international context, but also the consequences involved with it. So 
we have, remember, we have to remember that there were actually two events, weren't there, taking place in October. One of them was, from the point of view of oil prices, one of them was the oil embargo as such, but the other was, and operating in many ways independent of that, was OPEC's decision that it was going to raise prices anyway, um, and that the time was ripe for, oil, for OPEC now to, uh, to, to, to use its power as a cartel to make more money and to uh, and to and to have and to have a, a what was seen as a fairer share of the of the global global economy as a result of that. So understanding where OPEC was in all of this, quite apart from the question of the Arab oil embargo, is I think an important component in our overall discussion. And that's why I'm I'm glad that I'm glad that you're here. Thank you. But uh... If before going to the formation of uh, OPEC, one has to realize uh, the rise of uh, nationalism uh, in Arab countries and also Iran, especially Iran, and uh, even countries like Venezuela. And uh, by, by the, I mean, Venezuela actually started in for 1949 uh, thinking about bringing about an organization of the uh, uh, petroleum exporting countries together uh, so that they form a force to implement their influ influence on the market and on the prices. Now, the nationalization of uh, petroleum uh, in Iran, which uh, started in the 1950s, to 1951 was because before that, as, as you were mentioning, uh, the share of Iran was getting only 16% of the oil revenues. And by that time, the taxes that UK collected from the oil was much more, several times the portion that Iran was getting as revenue. And that was a very, uh, agitating sort of a, a factor in Iranian policy that they wanted to change that. And of course, uh, uh, it was nationalized by Mossadegh, which uh, that's another story. Uh, and immediately, Saudi Arabia started to re renegotiate their contract with Aramco. And they, they were successful to get the 50-50% share of the oil revenues. Now, Venezuela did not succeed immediately. Uh, this is important because Venezuela was not an Arab country. And they were really the founders, bringing together the founders to make the OPEC organization. But it took several years until 1960, when five countries, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq, Iran, and Venezuela, formed the organization of petroleum exporting countries that is called OPEC. Uh, the base of the organization was that each of these members and which continues up to today, are sovereign 
countries and independent participation in this organization. That means each country has got one representative and they, of course, the decisions are by consensus among, the, among each. OPEC later on, until 1970, uh, 10 more people, 10 more countries joined the organization. Uh, and uh, so the organization of OPEC was really enhanced. First, they had their center in Geneva, the center of uh, OPEC organization. Then, of course, in 1965, it was moved to Vienna. Uh, OPEC has got, still has got, uh, a president which is elected only for one year. But it has a secretariat and a general secretary, which is now established in Vienna, and uh, uh, it's for three years, the general secretary. But as I said, you know, there is always a dis discrepancy in how to call OPEC. A lot of people, they think it's a cartel, but the OPEC members, they don't think it is a cartel because they say each member is a sovereign member. And actually, when you look at the history of OPEC from 1960 until now, you will see there is so much disagreement between different members in implementing either prices or most important, the production. And uh, if, for example, in the uh, 1973 crisis, Iran was not part of the embargo. They didn't join because that was the group which was called OAPEC, which is Arab organizations of Arab petroleum exporting countries. Iran was not part of that. But Iran was very adamant that because of the, if, if you had any chance to look at the interview of 60 Minutes with Shah of Iran in, 19, in December 1973. I remember that one. He was so adamant and so angry. He was saying, look, all your products coming from the West to our countries are inflated. It's so much higher and our oil price is kept low. And actually in December of that year, the oil price went up by the insistence of Iran, which was executed to 1165 in Vienna the next year by Iran. So Iran was really after raising the price and has been an important element in raising the price, even up to now. So that is because of the, of course, uh, revenue for development of, and Shaw was so much uh, concerned about the development and bringing new technology and so on, and it needed the money. So that was the, the history of OPEC, how it was formed. But in 2016, another 10 members, non-OPEC producing, including Russia, uh, joined OPEC, which OPEC became called OPEC Plus, which is the original 13 members 
plus the new 10 members. But just as recently as uh, the recent crisis with Ukraine, there was differences between Russia and Saudi Arabia because Russia wanted to bring down the production because anyway, because of sanctions, they, they were limitations of export of Russian oil and Saudi Arabia didn't agree with Russia. So that's why there is always this uh, really difference in opinion whether OPEC is a cartel. Of course, OPEC can influence, but really by looking at the history, the OPEC influence has been always shorter because when you look at the prices of oil, yes, it goes up, but suddenly, especially in the graph that you have put in your report, you can see it, it goes down drastically afterwards. So the short-term influence is very important, and especially when there is a declaration right. of bringing down the production. Immediately, there is a panic in the market, and it influences the price, but, but really, in long term, it is stabilizes. So it really is dependent, isn't it? Yeah. It's what you're saying in the long term on yeah. global demand yeah. and the general Multiple. state of the global economy. Absolutely. And that was really one of the issues that the Arab countries who imposed the embargo at first as a punitive measure came to realize that among the countries being punished were them <laughs> because this was cutting them off from a very valuable re revenue. Absolutely. Actually, if I could interject, yeah. the thing was this, that the production of oil by uh, U.S. reached its peak, it, you mentioned it, in 1970, and there was no more extra capacity to produce. By 1973, 83% of uh, American uh, import was from OPEC, from OPEC countries, and that had a decisive role in, in uh, bringing that shock. I think you're right, especially for the United States, which was a major oil producing yeah. country, yeah. Uh, and still was, but yeah. the problem was the, the demand curve yeah. was surpassing the supply Absolutely. curve in a crucial ways. Now I have to ask you, um, for Americans then, for those of us who remember and were part of the scene when all of this was unfolding, the man who was the public face of OPEC was the Saudi minister, Sheikh Yamani. Yes. And we always, there he was on television, and wherever he went, yes. wherever hotel he stayed at, the reporters would appear and gather and yes. say, are you going to raise the price again? What's the decision? What's OPEC going to do? And so on. Um, on the other hand, I think it's also clear that the other person who was very much a driving force was the Shah, yes. uh, as well as Gaddafi. We can't yeah, leave out yeah, yeah. Omar Gaddafi, who I think has become a rather forgotten figure right now, in many ways was also a key driver in the idea that not just for nationalizing the oil industries in the oil producing countries, but also for saying that the oil price is too low for the kind of revenues that we should expect and we should be drawing on all this. But let me Libya, Libya didn't join OPEC in uh, embargo first, but when um, a U.S. shipped $2.2 billion worth of armament to Israel, then that was the they, tipping point. They, 
It's specifically against U.S. Right. They implemented the embargo, yeah. But, but even there, you yeah. know, you talked about the market forces influence, you know, how it, it, it boomeranged yeah. ultimately and affected the state. I was going to ask you about that, yeah. right. There, even beyond the economic part, there was also, you could call it a, a diplomatic military part, which is you have this, this imposition of the embargo against the United States, yeah. and there very quickly came up a question, it's like, well, the U.S. Navy needs fuel too, and the yeah. Navy is what's actually providing protection in the Gulf of the, of the very states that are embargoing the United States. So I think it didn't take very long, and there was a carve-out uh, for, the, for the Navy in order to get fuel for, the, yeah. you know, for these missions. Yeah, what you're making is a very important point, Jonathan, and that was is that, the, uh, is that the Arab countries, the Middle East generally, was not just dependent on the United States and the West yeah, yeah. for revenues. It was also dependent on for security. Right. They is, protected is, the, the Straits of Hormuz. And this is an issue, of course, which intensifies, yeah, doesn't it, true. after the Iranian Revolution, it is. when uh, the Straits of Hormuz, Strait of Hormuz becomes a battleground between Iraq and, and, and Iran. But I want to come back to um, the relationship between the Saudis and, and the Shah and his men. Yeah. Uh, what was that like? I mean, were they, did they, were they in agreement? Were there disagreements? No, not no. really. Because uh, especially uh, in, at the interview, as I said, with the Shah, uh, they, he's asked uh, about Zaki Yamani. So they go and ask him. <laughs> because he didn't <laughs> like even to talk about Zaki Yamani. Because he, uh, Zaki Yamani was uh, always in, uh, I mean, more close Although Shah was close to U.S. policies also, right. but Zaki Yamani was more uh, favorable towards the market conditions, the stabilization of the oil price and the production and so on. And th th that was uh, contrary to what Shah was thinking in bringing up the prices. Because as I say, hmm. Shah was ready to do anything if the price of oil was raised to the level that he wanted. And that was the difference. But of course, Zaki Yamani in 1973 played a very sensitive role. He came to US, he met with Kissinger, he told him that, you know, Sadat, as you mentioned, when Sadat came to power, contrary to Nasser, who was very, a little bit to the left, and also very close to the Soviets, Sadat, removed 16,000 Russian personnel which was, who were working in uh, uh, Egypt just to satisfy and become closer to US. Right. But became very unhappy <laughs> when he saw there is no response, no award by the US administration. But later on, actually, he played, Sadat played a very Big role because Saudi was after Saudi also demanded armament from US and US was not ready to give them. But through intervention of Sadat, uh, they told Sadat, yes, they are going to give the armament to Saudi. And Sadat sent that message to Faisal. And because of that, Faisal's position changed, which was 1974. And of course, the dark moment went in 1975. So all these, and Zaki Yamani played a very big role. In 19th, uh, 19th of October evening, 
Faisal was sitting in his court, uh, meeting with uh, the, uh, his uh, defense ministers and so on. And then, exactly at that time, Congress passed the $2.2 billion uh, of armament to Israel. And uh, Zaki Yamani came to the court and reported that this is passed. And tomorrow, it would be shipped. And on 20th, Faisal ordered that embargo to stop. To so, stop. Yeah. So that, that's, that's how Zaki Yamani's role was very crucial. And, uh, but and, but and unfortunately, so Kissinger didn't listen to Zaki Yamani when he wrote the threat of boycott and uh, embargo. He didn't listen. Even four CEOs of major American oil companies who had met Zaki Yamani before, they wanted to go and meet with Kissinger and told him, take this embargo seriously. It's going to happen. And Kissinger didn't listen. He didn't believe. And then happened on 20th of October. I think there too, there's, there's an interesting, there's some, some interesting sort of big picture developments and very small picture developments right around the dates that you're yeah, talking yeah, yeah. about. Um, I mentioned before the war of attrition, you have this massive influx of Soviet uh, personnel into, into Egypt, but it's also at that time that Sadat is thinking about flipping from, from being a Soviet client to aligning himself with the United States. And so you see before the war, yeah. You see this, this outreach, or you actually didn't see because it was all done very quietly, but you see this outreach from Sadat to the United States. You see the uh, expulsion of these, uh, these Soviet advisors. Uh, one thing I was, uh, I was reading was talking about how Nixon and Kissinger wanted Sadat to work for it. So they weren't as, uh, uh, as quick to, yeah. to give Sadat uh, uh, a big hug. Um, and I think once the war is, is, is underway, the war turns around the 14th, 15th. <laughs> and so I think that's, that's one factor. You have a massive, despite the expulsion of the Soviet personnel, the Soviets send a massive uh, airlift of uh, material and armaments to, uh, to Egypt and uh, to Syria because this because the war is is being seen as a proxy war between mm. uh, between the two sides, the U.S. which had talked about helping Israel, Israel was going through uh, ammunition, uh, planes and tanks much faster than they had planned for. They were taking losses that they had not anticipated, um, and so there had been talk early on of U.S resupply, but when they saw how badly this was going and how large the Soviet influx of, um, of material was, they stepped it up. And apparently, the US had planned to do this in a way that was not secret, but also wasn't, um, uh, wasn't very loud either. So the idea was to, to put this stuff on planes, have it land at night, and take off before uh, before morning, and what happened was because I think of bad weather, uh, some of these flights got delayed on their way to uh, to Israel, and so the whole timeline got shifted by several hours. Oh, so yeah, daylight comes, and you have this long train of U.S. 
uh, cargo aircraft coming in, which apparently made Faisal very angry uh, and contributed to his decision. So when you get to the, the 19th that you're talking about, in addition to the, the allocation of emergency aid, you also have this very public display of military support for Israel, and you have the war itself turning. Yes, and so I think all of these things contributed to, uh, to his mindset going into the embargo. Actually, by, uh, Israel was already victorious in the, in the fight. Uh, right. Even when this 2.2 billion worth uh, of uh, armament went to Israel, uh, they, they already had captured so much land and destroyed all the uh, air power of Syria and... and uh, the role of Egypt in this is fascinating, isn't it? Because I Egypt was not a member of OPEC. Was no, it no, 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 it wasn't. It's not an oil producer. No. But we also forget, <clears throat> it's one of those interesting um, uh, factors in Middle East history we forget, is that in the 1960s, there was a long and, and dirty war between Egypt and Saudi Arabia uh, under Nasser. Tens of thousands of Egyptian soldiers fighting in Saudi Arabia. People forget about this. So the issue of just how united the, the Arab community was, not just about oil prices, but also politically as a whole, um, there were lots of opportunities there for a strong U.S. policy to pull apart, yeah, which looked like <laughs> yeah. perhaps not OPEC as a whole, but certainly of member, the Arab uh, uh, members yes. in ways that could help to ease the, both mm. ease the, um, the, the embargo, but also to open a new chapter in the way in which U.S. policy in the Middle East was yeah. going to function. You know, that, that fighting was, was brutal and bitter and, yeah. and even involved uh, chemical weapons. weapons that's right. And um, you know, the other thing that I think is fascinating, you know, think, just looking at sort of the, the, how the tides turn over, um, and I don't know to what extent this affected the thinking of, of the Shah, yeah. but Iran then is not Iran today. True. And, um, I, I always, it's always surprising to people to hear that until 1979, uh, El Al, the Israeli national airline, had an office in Tehran, yeah. right? So there was, you don't have the same kind of uh, uh, relationship between Iran and Israel that you have today. That began um, with, the, uh, with the revolution and is, is, you know, there's no sort of natural enmity there. And not only just between Iran and Israel, but Iran and Saudi Arabia. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing, again, that we also have to bear in mind here. Now, in 1979, after the revolution, Iran imposes another price hike, yes, correct? Yes, absolutely. 19, you know, there was the several crisis at that time, uh, and uh, Afghanistan, for example, and so on. And uh, Iran uh, uh, tried to raise the price of oil. But uh, the reaction was that uh, really they, they couldn't sell their oil. Uh, and, and actually, uh, at that time, 20, in the, uh, during the shop was, of course, the revenue from oil was very high. Uh, but then in, in the revolution, at the revolution time, it went down to 20 billion per year. And even uh, later on, further went down to 5 billion. Uh, I mean, by, by the sanctions. So uh, that's what uh, happened, uh, you know, in 1979. Right. But but uh, Shaw, actually, I was responsible uh, among one of my projects, a secret pipe oil pipeline which we financed, Iran financed, 
in Israel. So uh, uh, we were so close, of course, not officially. No, no. But like so uh, much of what uh, happens yeah, in the Middle East. Very close to Israel because Shaw was not very much. Of course, he had a great influence uh, uh, policy-wise with the neighboring Arabs and so on. But he always kept Israel also as a counterweight and, uh, uh, you know, in that region. If we were to think about <clears throat> the, where U.S. policy sat in all this and in the, the sort of roiling of events and economic trends and the price of oil, 73, 74, if you think about what, what U.S. could have done differently, um, where it could have anticipated the problems that were to come or have taken um, a, different, a different course perhaps that might have if not actually prevented the oil embargo, um, because the idea of the U.S. not supporting Israel, I think, was just not possible. No, it, was, no. it was not a possibility. But we think about, I'll, I'll put out three, three, I want commentary from both of you on, on three possible uh, avenues where you at, where that had a direct effect in weakening U.S. position in dealing with this threat. Number one, Kissinger not taking seriously the threat of an embargo until it was too late. Yeah. Number two, the weakness of the president himself and presidential authority yeah. Yeah. because of the Watergate scandals exactly. and what was unfolding there. And then the third one is <coughs> U.S. oil production and the fact that we had uh, any number of ways in which production could have been raised, yeah. adding, for example, of the Alaska pipeline for the big discoveries there, um, offshore drilling uh, in California, um, but which for the opposition on the part of environmentalists, um, for the, all the kinds of challenges in facing and those kinds of big infrastructure projects, which uh, happened too late in order to affect mm. this. The issue of energy independence, as we call yeah, it, yeah. it seems to me looms very large in understanding what happened, what happened with the crisis. I want to get your reactions, both of you, on this, those, those three points. So I, I, think, I think those points are right. And I think one of the things that's most instructive uh, in answering your question is looking what the U.S. did afterwards. Yeah. That is, the U.S., you know, as I said before, was, you know, was vulnerable at that point for, I think, for all the reasons uh, you listed. You know, political, uh, the, the, the political, uh, um, Vulnerabilities of you know one candidate or another, whether it's because of you know an extreme case like Watergate or 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 who knows what. I think those things those things come and go all you know all the time, and in some ways are are unpredictable. But what did the U.S. do afterwards? Well, one thing they did was they created the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is you know it it doesn't prevent this thing from happening, but it creates a cushion. Um, a cushion. It creates a buffer so that if there are these sorts of shocks, your ability to absorb them is greater than it had been previously. Uh, the second thing is you have the creation of the International Energy Agency, which is in, in, intended, uh, I'm not an expert on, on, on the IEA, but the idea is to, you know, to coordinate the positions of, of the, the consuming countries so that it isn't uh, a free-for-all in dealing, you know, sort of it, it, to coordinate sort of the, the, the consumers, at least in some way, the way that the producers were now coordinating. I think it was, and I think Kissinger's mind, Kissinger's mind the setting up of, 
of the uh, IEA was precisely as a counterbalance to OPEC. Yeah. That was his original. If you're gonna, if you're gonna influence price on the, on the supply, supply side, side right. we'll introduce, we'll, we'll influence it on the demand side. Right, and there was, there was a clear, and I think largely, uh, there, I mean, we can talk about how successful these things were or weren't, but there was, you know, the, the embargo um, categorized countries. So, you know, you had those that were, you know, completely, uh, completely embargoed and those who were sort of uh, neutral and those who were, you know, most favored. And, um, and it created all of these, these strange sorts of things. Um, so, you know, the Netherlands was also uh, embargoed and you had this problem Very with, the, you know, the European uh, common market that was supposed to be treating the European countries equally. And it created all these dilemmas because you have this, you know, the Arab embargo in there. So it made it so that the Europeans had to figure out ways to get non-Arab oil at the appropriate price to the Netherlands, even though, you know, they themselves, others could, could consume. So I think, you know, the idea of an IEA to, to sort of um, you know, flatten the, the, you know, the, 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 the playing field, even the playing field for the consumers, I think, is, uh, I think is interesting as well. Very important part of it. But during, actually, during the embargo, as you mentioned, some uh, European countries, you know, tried to have a special relationship. UK uh, uh, forbid the planes going from U.S. to help Israel to land in Cyprus, to use Cyprus. And just because of doing that, <laughs> they were favored by the, by the Saudis. As a, and France, the foreign minister of France, went and saw King Faisal, and they, they, they signed a 20-year treaty for a special uh, oil contract directly with the Saudis. Japan went to, uh, the foreign minister of Japan went to Saudi during all that time. And they made a special economic treaty with, with Saudis for long-term uh, help in technology and future things. So there were, yes, uh, some, and of course, the European Union, at that, which was EEC at that time, uh, they declared, uh, you know, they, they were opposed to the outright support, unconditional support of US for Israel. That's what they, they declared. And that, of course, helped them with the, with the Arab, with the OPEC countries. Should we have open up to some questions from the yeah. audience? Sure. Questions? Lou. Yes. Um, actually, you know, there was, I was in the Interior Department. There was a huge. Why don't you wait for the mic? Okay. And then, you know, what you could also do is. Uh, for, for questioners, just identify yourself, and, uh, but your affiliations. Uh, Energy Policy Research Foundation. So there was a huge forensic analysis done, and the embargo was largely unsuccessful because you yeah. could swap, you change names Good. of tankers on the high seas. What happened in the Middle East was oil, ex there was a shift in expectations. Expectations in the past were these vast quantities of oil we produced competitively through foreign developers. And we had massive nationalization, so expectation shifted. Yeah. And the expectation was oil would be produced at a slower rate in the future. Okay. I got all the stuff about the embargo. <laughs> and the, 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 the sort of public face of the embargo with the lines is all based on price controls in the US. There were no lines in the yeah, Netherlands yeah. and other places. It was a line already. Yeah. Even 79. 79 was another shift in expectation. Yeah. 
Because once you see Iran and Iraq go to war, you know future yeah. production from that part of the world yeah. is going to be much slower in the future. So I think it's important to understand what. Now, the idea of the IEA makes sense in the sense that you can collectively do things to deal with a concentration of low-cost reserves and unstable parts of the world, right? It's a potential to extract wealth. Yeah. So there you want diversification of supply, more production. So I think it's, a, it's kind of important to parse out what the political actors are doing from what they're actually doing. Well, actually, uh, this, uh, during even embargo, I mean, it, America in reality was uh, less affected. It was the Japan which was importing 90% of its oil from Middle East, and the European Union, which was 75%. Uh, those were really hurt especially Japan. Japan went into a recession and so on. Because they were so dependent. Yeah, they were so dependent. Whereas we still had, yeah. we still had yeah. production levels at a, uh, yeah. which were yeah, not, not expanding, not growing, but were still able yeah. to make At that some time, uh, 17 million uh, barrels per day was the uh, demand uh, in US, and it was only 650,000 from Saudi Arabia import. So, it was really <laughs> nothing to be counted, really. As he said, that was, it, was, uh, it was not very successful. Later oil, on, it proved that uh, embargo was not successful at all, really. Oil being a fungible commodity. Yeah. Please. Hi, my name is Ann Vroom, and I was looking uh, in, in your report, Dr. Herman, uh, where you have, there's a striking graph, um, monthly U.S. imports of crude oil. And as you say, in the late, uh, it appears by the graph metrics, in the late 70s, it, it went up, started rising dramatically. Could you speak a little more as to Presuming that we indeed in the United States had enough oil under the ground to supply ourselves, why did we lose the capacity to do that and thus the need to import, rely on import so heavily? Well, there are a number of factors that are there, and our, um, our, our, our guest from uh, who was working at the Interior Department can, can either back me up or confirm some of this. Part of it was is that uh, through the 1960s, it was just so cheap to import oil. The price was so low, as the Shah and others understood, <laughs> that it made it possible to, to do that. And it was cheaper to import than it was to try and open new sources of oil or explore uh, or take advantage of, um, of existing resources. Part of it, too, was a mindset which had come upon the oil industry uh, and those who were, who were watching over it. And that was this notion of, of, of peak oil. And that was is that the world's reserves were, in fact, running dry. Remember all this discussion about the fact that, yeah. that part, of the, part of the reason for the OPEC price rise was because it just wasn't going to be more oil. And so the United States, and particularly oil companies in the States, were finding that the cost of looking for new reserves for developing, exploring and developing and exploiting those reserves was simply so much at this point but that actually, it that it made that it made more sense for them to maintain their business and, and to continue the the, the import uh, of of oil uh, for refinement. The whole the, the discovery the discovery of the of the Prudhoe Prudhoe Bay 
was should have been a, wa a watershed because it came early enough. It came early enough that if it had been um, developed and exploited, and um, that uh, the, the 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 development of the pipeline um, could have changed the balance of U.S. domestic production versus imports in ways that would have mitigated against the, uh, against the effect of OPEC's price rise. Um, which again, as I stress, it's two events. There's the price rise itself, and there's the oil embargo. But people forget, wheat did not have offshore leasing in federal lands. That's true. It was So the Interior Department then, actually, uh, the, chair, the chairman of our organization. Why don't you restate that about the so, federal versus so state? At, in 1973-74, most offshore production was just on state lands. Mm -hmm. right? The chairman of my organization actually was at the Interior Department. He's the one who hired me. He proposed to release 10 million acres a year offshore. This was a big thing. They had to sell it to Roy Ash, who was the head of OMB then. He'd come from Lytton. He says, well, you can't do that because we, that's too deep. We don't have the technology for it. But the Interior Department convinced him, look, if you want people to drill out there, lease it, they'll invent the technology. Yeah. And they went with the, with the House committees. They went to Norway and Britain to see how it was done. And so one of the things you want to do is change expectations. This idea that you see some small change in the market spikes prices. Yes, but it, what does it say about expectations on future production? And I think it was, a, it was a good initiative. Now, I think in retrospect, they should have had more, they should have had production targets almost because you know, the opposition to pipelines, the lengthy legal fights slowed that down. But, you know. One of the problems was with the uh, really change of US, U.S. administration. Never, when you look at the various policies, uh, even Frank, from Franklin Roosevelt onward, every administration has come up with a policy, energy policy, but then politics of the next administration are changing. So when we look at all these years, there is not a very continuous and really fixed sort of a policy so that to get the result of. For example, even during Carter, President Carter was so pessimistic about the reserves of oil. He was thinking that the reserves will dry up not only in U.S., but in open countries also. Right. It was proved totally wrong because even now it's estimated until 2050, I mean, there's enough reserves. So but that, even that, that idea that, there, that you know, the world is running out of yeah, oil, yeah. it wasn't just, it, it didn't just affect decisions to explore or not explore uh, in places like the United yeah, States. Yeah. The... the the OPEC countries believe this as well, or at least they profess to believe yeah, this. Yeah, and yeah. so in part of their arguments with, with Kissinger and others was, we need to change the price because right. we're, we need to make our money from this now because yeah. soon it'll be gone and then we won't be able to make anything from it. So that was one of their arguments was that, was that this was uh, uh, a valuable resource but also a, a very limited resource. And they wanted to invest in, uh, in future in other areas as now, of course, Saudi approachment with Israel really is in that area, that they want to use the new technologies and so on, and quite uh, substantial investment in future. No, it's a great example of how policy decisions, even very, very simple ones, 
can be affected by the mindset of those who conceive and implement them. And if you have a pessimistic view of the world and of your own country's interests, you come up with this one set of policy recommendations. If you have a more optimistic view, if you really do believe that an energy crisis of whatever kind can be overcome, that technology and political will can be there to address it, you come up with a, a different, and I would argue, a better set as well. Should we thank our guests for a presentation? Thank you. Yes, uh, thank you so much to our first panel for coming <laughs> a, for a very lively and engaging uh, debate. We are now serving lunch in the back of the room. If you would take 10 or 15 minutes to collect and, uh, and eat, and then we will hear from our keynote address. It's going to be exciting. I cannot wait. Thank you all so very much. We'll see you back in a few minutes. Take this opportunity to welcome you again to the Betsy Wally Stern Conference Center here at Hudson. We're delighted to host you here and uh, and to um, uh, gather you on the very important topic of energy and the future of our country and the future of the world. Uh, um, at Hudson, we were founded over 60 years ago, and um, um, we have dealt mostly with national security over those 60 years, not exclusively, but mostly. Um, we have begun to be much more active on uh, issues of energy policy because they're so important for our strategic future. And they are, um, um, in some ways, current policies are uh, things that we hope we will rethink and uh, use the capacities that the United States has, both uh, in materials and in knowledge, to revolutionize the future for democracies and for allies around the world. In that regard, uh, we could not be more honored to have Mike Summers here. As most of you in this room know, he is the 15th Chief Executive of the American Petroleum Institute. That is, of course, the largest trade association representing all aspects of America's natural gas and oil industry. Um, the giant of the world, I believe, in this capacity and knowledge and capacity to produce the energy that the world needs. Since Mike's appointment in July of 2018, he has overseen a strategic realignment of API's priorities and its advocacy efforts. He led the organization through an unprecedented period of global energy uh, market change. He effectively positioned the industry through political transitions in Washington and in state capitals across the country. I presume that's an ongoing effort in the current environment. <laughs> Previously, he headed the American Investment Council, representing the nation's leading private equity and growth capital firms and other business partners. Throughout his career, he has held critical leadership roles at the U.S. House of Representatives and at the White House. He, of course, as some of you know here, was chief of staff to House Speaker John Boehner and Special Assistant to President George W. Bush at the National Economic Council. Uh, again, we have begun a partnership with him and API to look at how we can change for the better America's energy policy to better meet the important needs and the critical dangers that we now face in the world and are, of course, acutely felt today. So we could not be happier than to, to welcome Mike to Hudson Institute and to speak to you today. Mike. 
Thank you, John, for that very kind introduction. It is great to partner with such an august uh, think tank like the Hudson Institute, and we're honored to be a key partner with you on energy policies going forward. As we continue to watch the stream of heartbreaking images coming out of Israel and the Middle East, President Biden represents all of us. In his opposition to Hamas-led terrorism and his work to prevent further conflict, in an area that has seen too much. We agree with the president that American leadership is needed now more than ever. This is not the first time shockwaves in the Middle East have reverberated across the world. And it's both sad and fitting that we are here to reflect on another crisis that deeply shaped our nation and the world around us, the 50th anniversary of the Arab oil embargo. That historic pause of oil shipments to the United States and other nations by oil-producing Arab countries was imposed due to our support of Israel during the war at Yom Kippur. Underpinned by conflict, the embargo was a turning point for America's oil and natural gas industry, as well as U.S. energy policy. It's a geopolitical lesson that cannot be relegated to textbooks and classrooms. We must learn from the past to prevent today's leaders from sowing the seeds of the next energy crisis. The energy crisis of 1973 taught us many things. But in my mind, the most critical is that American energy strength is a tremendous source, source of security, prosperity, and freedom around the world. In contrast, US energy weakness hinders America and emboldens our adversaries. We know that good energy policy in America doesn't happen with the flip of a switch. It takes education and open mind and the good sense to use our own resources. Politically, energy can and should be a bipartisan and unifying issue. But we must come together as a country to get the details right to chart an energy future that works. Now is the time, 50 years after the 1973 energy crisis, to do exactly that. It's hard not to notice a few similarities between the landscape in 1973 and that of today. If you look around, America finds itself divided in the same way that we were in the 1970s. Back then, it was driven, of course, by the Vietnam War. Now, animosity flourishes everywhere, fanned by social media. Inflation was high then, it's high now. We are a nation gridlocked by political polarization and scandal. Today, as in 1973, we face geopolitical hostilities across a dynamic world that needs more energy, a conflict in the Middle East that could swiftly expand, the largest land war in Europe since World War II, and China acting aggressively against Taiwan. The seeds of the 1973 crisis were sown when short-sighted U.S. policy missteps made America increasingly dependent on foreign oil imports. Back then, Republican President Nixon ushered in an era of price controls, rationing, and import tariffs that not only favored foreign oil imports, but, but did little to spur continued energy investment here in the United States. Fifty years later, President Biden has sought an all-of-government approach to increase barriers to domestic oil and natural gas production. Instead of learning from our history, we're at the risk of repeating it. As this administration increases regulatory and tax burdens on a uniquely American industry, 
our leaders have important questions to consider today or face growing consequences tomorrow. First, do we revert back to energy vulnerability that led to and then worsened the 1973 embargo crisis? Or do we resolve to harness America's vast energy potential for our own security and increased stability throughout the world? Second, what can we learn from the policies and practices of a prior generation that defeated the tyranny of World War II? As American policymakers seek answers, they should know we possess a stabilizing force and a hedge against overseas unrest, American energy from oil and natural gas. This doesn't happen on its own. We must reset policies to unlock our energy resources and strengthen America. With a pandemic and political polarization, the 2020s have already proven volatile. But after the attacks by Hamas in Israel 11 days ago, and with Putin's war in Ukraine about to enter its third year, America's natural gas and oil are critical now, just as they were at other times in our history. Indeed, the decades before the embargo were actually a period of enormous American energy strength. And the story is not always taught in school where Pearl Harbor and D-Day and the atomic bomb dominate. In truth, the secret weapon for allied strength in World War II was American oil. The US industry supplied and moved a remarkable 86% of the crude oil needed to defeat the, both Japan and Nazi Germany. Even Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin recognized the critical contribution of the American oil field in fending off the German offensive of 1941 and 1942. In fact, at a banquet honoring Sir Winston Churchill during the war, Stalin offered the following toast. This is a war of engines and octane. I drink to the American auto industry and the American oil industry. In his most recent paper, Hudson Institute's own Arthur Herman makes clear that if America's effort to finance and build infrastructure for moving oil and refined products across the country had the active support of the federal government at that time run by another Democratic administration. The energy policy of Franklin D. Roosevelt set in motion the means to win the war. It also helped build a strong foundation for years of domestic peace and prosperity. Oil and natural gas production gave America the ability to keep the peace, greatly expand our industrial capacity, and grow our economy. So what went wrong? How did America go from prioritizing its resources to win the Second World War to growing more dependent on unstable foreign nations for energy? How did we wind up a victim of the 1973 embargo? The seeds of the 1973 energy crisis began to sprout in the 1960s. Washington created price controls and passed laws that discouraged investment in American energy resources. In short, free markets were shackled. Our nation allowed energy production to shift overseas. The stage was set for the embargo and the economic chaos that ensued. For Americans still fighting a hot war in Vietnam and the Cold War with the Soviet Union, it all happened so quickly. During the short Yom Kippur War in October 1973, Arab oil leaders imposed an embargo on oil shipments against Western nations for their support of Israel. The embargo eventually quadrupled the global price of oil. 
It was immediately clear that Americans, the designers of final victory in World War II, were dealt a major economic blow. President Nixon called for gasoline rationing and, and cutting heating oil deliveries to homes and businesses. The economic hits were painful. Nearly every American paid a price. The embargo lasted only a few months, but started a lost decade of inflation, high interest rates, and high unemployment. When the next energy crisis hit, spurred by Iran, President Jimmy Carter delivered a speech in 1979 describing our response as, quote, the moral equivalent of war. He called for reduced energy demand, decreased gasoline consumption, and fewer oil imports. What was missing from Carter's list of energy policy ideas? Increasing American oil production. American resources and the workers poised to produce them were summarily dismissed from the solution. So it wasn't just a lost economic decade for America. It set in motion four lost decades for American energy. U.S. production collapsed in half between the early 1970s and 2008. Now, during this time, the industry made some critical advances, especially in terms of technology. American energy producers developed second and third generation offshore rigs, helped invent the liquefied natu natural gas industry, and built the Trans-Alaska Pipeline with bipartisan support. Auto manufacturers did their part as well building lighter, more fuel-efficient vehicles. In fact, cars run a, about 99% cleaner today than not models produced in 1970. From all these experiences, there's one clear lesson. Washington seems to always forget. The only true path to lasting energy security is strong and consistent support for oil and natural gas production right here in the United States. In the absence of smart policy that acknowledges the lessons of the last 50 years, how did America emerge to where we are today, the number one oil and natural gas producer in the world? The answer is tremendous technological advancements within the industry itself. Grit, patient innovation, and ingenuity to reach previously unreachable resources. A commitment to trial and error. The relentless pursuit of freedom, free markets, and yes, fracking. The shale revolution that started about 15 years ago was the dawn of a second morning in America. Technology has placed America at the center of the energy universe, and thankfully, ours is a free nation where if you own your own property, you have the rights to the subsurface too. This has allowed our industry to thrive without the need for government intervention on private lands. Slowly over the years, a path toward American energy strength was put in place. Until now, over the past three years, our nation has seen a profound shift from the federal government to move away from America's oil and natural gas. Rather than work both towards energy security and environmental progress, President Biden and his, have, and his team have continued to govern with contradictory policy while vilifying American energy. The Biden administration's record on American energy includes the fewest offshore leases offered since 1980 adding barriers to federal leasing since day one in office, dozens of delayed or canceled pipeline projects, growing regulatory restrictions placed on nearly every aspect of development, transportation, and fuel manufacturing. 50 years after the embargo, these mounting restrictions are sowing the seeds of the next energy crisis with significant ramifications for consumer costs, reliability, 
and broader energy security. And it doesn't have to be this way. We can come together to get energy policy right. With instability abroad, the world needs leadership and Americans need the White House and Congress to send a clear message, an unequivocal signal about the real value of American oil and natural gas. Here are three key ways that they can do it. First, increase access and reduce restrictions to produce energy in America. On public lands and in federal waters, especially in the Gulf of Mexico, yes, America is producing natural gas and oil at near record levels in the last few months. But that's largely due to development on private lands and leases that were granted during the Obama and Trump administrations. The fact is, simply, America would not be the world's top producer without access to public lands and public waters. Similarly, we could not do this without the ability to send our products and progress to markets around the world, the result of a bipartisan act of Congress to lift the crude oil export ban in 2015. We need fewer restrictions on access, a realistic plan for offshore leasing, and a return to quarterly onshore lease sales that Congress mandated a generation ago in response to the energy crises of the 1970s. Instead of looking abroad for America's energy security, the president should look to Texas, Louisiana, Pennsylvania, New Mexico, and North Dakota, among other states, to produce our energy. Next is permitting reform. Congress and the White House recently agreed to the Fiscal Responsibility Act, or the FRA, the debt ceiling deal that opens the door to modernizing the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA. We've seen project after project get delayed or canceled because of our old permitting process, getting permits for roads and bridges and pipelines and transmission lines, and yes, renewable energy projects shouldn't take more than a decade. There's bipartisan support for NEPA reform in the FRA, which acknowledge that obstacles to new oil and gas and natural gas infrastructure also hinder low carbon assets for carbon capture and hydrogen. Months after its passage, you can guess how much progress the White House has made on NEPA reform. Zero. It's time for Congress and the White House to step up. At a time when Americans can least afford it, the red tape is piling up. While we want smart regulations, many proposals coming out of this administration would have far-reaching implications for our way of life with unclear benefits. And that brings me to the last lesson the importance of avoiding the creation of new dependencies. Take President Biden's electric vehicle mandate. It effectively requires that two-thirds of new light-duty vehicles sold in America be all electric in the coming years. Not EVs and hybrids, just EVs. Today, there are just 2.5 million EVs on the road in America and 276 million conventional vehicles. The majority of EV manufacturing occurs in China, including the mining of rare earth minerals for EV batteries. This mandate will make us even more reliant on China. This rule would hurt America's auto industry and imperil the jobs of hundreds of thousands of America's auto workers. It would also limit American consumers from driving vehicles that they want to drive. API has called the proposed rule a de facto ban that on, on the vehicles that most Americans use today. The rule must be drastically altered or totally withdrawn. A return to dependence on oil or EV battery parts from unstable regimes is completely unthinkable. 
And then Senator Joe Biden himself said in 2006, until we do something about our dependence on imported oil, we will not be in control of our own economic security. The senator was right. The president is wrong. For a long time, beginning in the 1960s, we pursued short-sighted energy policies. Leaders then made bad choices that leaders today seem intent on repeating. But there's still time to self-correct. We cannot squander our strategic advantage and retreat on energy leadership. We already did it once, and we cannot repeat history. With an unstable war in Europe, an unstable world, and war in the Middle East, and energy demand outstripping supply, energy security is on the line. We have seen here what works with the right signals from Washington, D.C. American oil and gas are needed now more than ever. We have the resources, we have the workers, and we have the ingenuity. Let's take to heart the lessons we learned from 1973 and avoid sowing the seeds of the next energy crisis. We can and must work together to get this done. Thank you very much for your time. With that, I'm happy to take any questions from the audience. John? Questions? Up here. Arthur. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. That was marvelous and a marvelous summary of what we did right in the past and what we did wrong, but also where we need to go in the future and some concrete steps. But I'm gonna ask you about something um, in the uh, else, which is, it's the American Petroleum Institute. Um, one of the keys in my mind to American energy independence and beyond is the role of, of nuclear power. And I'm wondering if um, you and API have an official stance with regard to nuclear power, its role in how you see America's energy future and infrastructure and so on, and, um, and, and how you assess where the partnership with uh, nuclear technology and the companies that are involved with it really, is, really are part of the, the safeguards for our future. World energy needs are going up. They're not going down. Uh, I know for a fact, uh, based on recent studies that we've seen, that my kids are gonna use about 50% more energy than I did throughout my lifetime. So the world's gonna require more energy. It's gonna require better energy. And one of the keys to that is to ensure that we have all sources of energy uh, that we're utilizing in the United States and throughout the world. That includes nuclear energy. Uh, and I think there's a bright future for nuclear energy if, again, we can get that permitting process right. Right now, there's a you know, brand new nuclear facility in the state of Georgia. It took 30 years to build that facility because of permitting delay after permitting delay. And unfortunately, we're also seeing Europe go back on their commitment to nuclear energy, uh, closing nuclear plants in Germany, and unfortunately, reopening coal plants. Uh, and so the real economic solution and environmental solution is for us to be pursuing a, uh, an approach to energy that includes all forms of energy because we're going to need it all. But the, the cornerstone of world energy is going to continue to be oil and gas for decades and decades to come. In fact, the International Energy Agency, which was referenced on the previous panel, suggests that even in 2050, 
Even if every country were to meet its commitments under the Paris Climate Accords, 50% of the world's energy would come from oil and gas. So we cannot forgo investments in this industry, uh, even as we see new energies coming to fore. Nuclear is going to play a very key part in that energy future, but we can't forget the key investments in oil and gas. And unfortunately, world investment in oil and gas continues to go down, not up, even though we know demand is going to continue to go up. So it's important for us to get new energy online as quickly as possible, but to not forget that key energy uh, cornerstone of oil and natural gas going forward. Can I ask a quick follow-up? Um, exploration production is going down. How much of that is due to ideological, i.e., climate change concerns, and how much is it to do with sort of the general state of the, ener of the global energy market and, and companies operating there? Uh, I do think a lot of it has to do with a lack of investment because of concerns over environmental issues. The truth of the matter, though, is that if we don't have natural gas replacing coal in the world market today, we're going to go backwards on our environmental progress, not forwards. Natural gas is the way. If we would just be able to replace coal throughout the world with natural gas, uh, that would be a way for us to continue to meet our climate commitments. Uh, and unfortunately, that investment's going down. Uh, particularly in the rest of the world. Where there are, are continue to be investments here in the United States, it's the rest of the world where uh, I think we have deep concerns about where that investment is. Just some basic numbers. The world consumes over 100 million barrels of oil every single day. In ba uh, barrels of oil equivalent, it's about 70 million more barrels of natural gas. So somehow, it's about 170 million barrels that we need of energy every single day. That is not easily replaced, and we're going to need those resources for decades and decades to come, and that investment has to continue. Hi, I'm Jack Spencer with the Heritage Foundation. Um, I agree with everything you said. Like, I think it was a great speech, so I wanted to preface my question with that because my question's not going to be as nice, or I mean, that's the wrong word. You, you've mentioned a couple of times replacing coal. And I wonder why that's why you frame it that way, because to me, if we're talking about energy security, clean energy, coal should fit right in there. The only reason coal, I would argue, is not is it suffered the anti-CO2 narrative. But when you look at criteria, pollutants, and all, you know, if, if what we're trying to achieve is energy security, why, when you talk about it, do you talk about replacing coal? So there's a dual challenge in the world. We have to continue to meet the energy demands of a growing world. But we also have to do it in a way that addresses the environment. Uh, coal is going to play a, a continued role in our energy structure. There's no doubt. You know, for example, uh, in the, the last so-called energy transition occurred in the 1960s when uh, oil and gas replaced coal as the dominant source of energy. You know, we're, we're, there's a lot of talk now about this next energy transition. But in 2022, the world consumed more coal than it has in the history of humanity more coal than it did in the 1960s when it was the dominant form of energy. So, and in 2023, the world's going to consume more coal than it did in 2022. So there are growing energy demands, not diminishing energy demands. The case that I would make, though, is from an environmental perspective, natural gas, burning natural gas is 50% cleaner, more clean, than uh, burning coal. And if we're going to continue to try to meet those environmental commitments, the best thing that we could do is to... Uh, 
really export American environmental progress. Remember, the United States is the number one uh, uh, re reducer of greenhouse gas emissions of any other country in the world. And it's mainly because of the fuel switch that happened from coal to natural gas as the primary support, primary, uh, uh, the, the primary uh, source of energy in this country. I think if we want to continue to meet those environmental goals, not just in the United States, but throughout the world, we want to export that American environmental progress to other parts of the world, like Asia. Um, where coal consumption continues to go up and use American natural gas to help those countries meet their environmental goals as well. But I believe coal is going to have a, a, a robust future going forward because energy demand continues to rise uh, throughout the world. My case is that a better environmental thing to do is to use American natural gas to help power those economies that continue to grow. John? Yeah. Uh Thank you. That was a that was a great speech, and I think it uh, sets out some principles that we've needed for for a while to pay attention to. And so, I uh, I applaud your willingness to take uh, take the risk and say those things because uh, Washington is a place where uh, people don't take as many risks as they should these days. I was struck, though, uh, in our work working with uh, allies of the United States and in the world. Um, how much, and the way we got into this, as I said at the beginning, was how much of our energy policy is punishing our own allies and potential allies. That the, that the uh, policies of the European countries and the United States have been such that developing countries are being left behind. They're being told, you know, you should use just alternatives, where there is no reasonable capacity for those alternatives to meet the needs, especially of large and populous areas. I wondered in your work at, at API, is there, is there an organization of developing countries or right now when I meet with them, when I meet with the ambassadors here or in a body, they kind of, they kind of uh, uh, bow down to the, to, the, to the current policy and say, oh, of course we want to be, be good on the, uh, on, on the environmental policies. But in fact, what they're saying is we can't mean that because we have to destroy our own f economic future and the, and the possibilities of RP. Is, is, there, is there an international body that represents the real interests of and tries to have a balance between the technology for, clean, for cleaner energy we could give them, the capacity to receive the energy that we could give them, and help create a sensible plan for the developing world that would be in the interest of the people who live there? Yeah, I, I do. Th you know, we work very closely at API with uh, developing nations. We meet frequently with the uh, their embassies here in Washington, D.C., uh, to talk about their growing needs for natural, natural gas. Um, at a recent conference uh, in uh, Qatar, there were lots of discussions about uh, how we fill those needs with, again, with natural, American natural gas. These countries, these Asian countries in particular, want and desire American natural gas, uh, and we want to be able to provide it to them. Uh, we're not running out of natural gas in this country. In fact, there's 400 years of supply of natural gas in Pennsylvania alone. That doesn't even include the, uh, the Permian-based associated gas uh, that comes when you're producing oil. So there is a lot of natural gas in this country, uh, and we want to be able to share it uh, with the world, again, to import so that they can import American uh, environmental progress uh, through liquefied natural gas. Uh, you know, the terminals that are being built in Louisiana and Texas right now are uh, fascinating. You know, when I was on Capitol Hill in 2005, all the conversation was building terminals to import natural gas. And now we've converted all of those terminals to export natural gas. I mean, that is a, a consequence of the innovation that came from the fracking revolution. So we work very closely um, with our allies overseas uh, to help them uh, do some capacity building to, uh, to, to import American natural gas uh, in, in particular. Uh, but we also have to remember, 
you know, just to put it in, in raw numbers, and I stole these numbers from Arjun Murthy, you know, who's one of the, the best energy economists in the world. You know, those of us in this room, just to put it in personal numbers, you use about 16 barrels of oil every single year. You yourself, you use 16 barrels of oil every single year. About a billion people in the world out of 8 billion use 16 barrels of oil every single day, every single year. Uh, the rest of the world, the other 7 billion, among all of them, they use about three barrels every single day. So this is the case that I'm making, that the world is going to continue to grow. We're going to have 2 billion more people in 2050. Those people are going to be re requiring more energy. They want to become among those that are using 16 barrels of oil every single year, not just three. And so we need the investment here in the United States and throughout the world to produce that energy that they're going to require as the middle class continues to grow and energy needs can continue to grow and American energy needs continue to grow with them. So uh, that's the case that we make, that that investment has, is required and that if, you're, if we're going to be using all of this energy, it's better to be getting it from here in the United States than through regimes that are continue to be hostile to American interests. So uh, you're right, the energy poverty question is one that should be forefront in all of the conversations that we have. It should balance the conversation that we're having about environmental performance as well. Uh, and these developing nations in particular are hungry for American leadership. In the back. You've obviously pointed out that um, this whole subject of carbon emissions is the fulcrum on which energy policy in the United States uh, very often turns. And w one um, technology issue you didn't comment on, I'd, I'd ask you to comment on it, is carbon capture. I was surprised to hear Bill Gates the other day extol the virtues of carbon capture. and. If we can put catalytic converters on our cars and genetically modified food to deal with this, what, 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 first, what are the prospects for carbon capture? And secondly, isn't the petroleum industry the largest benefit? Aren't, aren't they the ones you would expect to sort of do the research to, to figure out carbon capture so that the industry would be off of this spotlight on, on um, carbon? Thank you. It's a great question. Um, we spent a lot of our time advocating for carbon capture at API. Uh, we advanced uh, through the Inflation Reduction Act um, at the, uh, and during last year's uh, congressional session. Uh, uh, carbon capture got new incentives through the so-called 45Q tax credit. You're already starting to see uh, massive investments into carbon capture facilities as a consequence of that. Uh, you know, Exxon has one, uh, Occidental Petroleum uh, in particular has a different approach, which where they're pursuing direct air capture. But this isn't new technology for the oil and gas industry. It's a technology that this industry has used for decades and decades. The real question is, how can you scale it? And can you make it economic at scale? And what the 45Q tax credit does is it incentivizes that and allows us to do it at scale. Uh, and so it is a, I, I think there are huge prospects for it. Um, one of the biggest challenges that we have right now is siting of those facilities to capture the carbon. Uh, and that's going to be, again, another very difficult permitting process that we're going to have to go through both at the state and the federal level. This permitting process is so very broken that it takes decades to build pipelines and LNG terminals and 
um, you know, the, the renewable facilities that have to be built. But carbon capture is going to get caught up in that same mess unless we get this permitting reform process done in a way that makes sense, not just for our energy demand, but for uh, our climate goals as well. Wherever you want to go. <laughs> I want to ask about the, the prices. Uh, 50 years ago, the prices went up because of a war. So now we have uh, other wars that are happening now, and people like John Bolton are going on TV saying Iran is responsible for Hamas. So what happens if, if we listen to him like we did on the Iraq war and go to war with Iran? Are the prices going to go through the roof and, and you know, the, the human um, cost to it? Is, are the wars good for the oil industry or in, investors like stability and it's going to hurt it's going to hurt everybody well i'd say that you know the the people that are uh, going to be hurt most by ongoing con conflict in oil uh, producing regions are american consumers um, and consumers throughout the world um, obviously uh, we'd prefer stability in the world but it's not always an option uh, and of course uh, you know iran funding the uh, hamas led terrorism in, uh, in, in the Gaza Strip. Well, one, one thing we do know is that Iran is the number one global sponsor of terror throughout the world. Uh, and I, I think we have to continue to support Israel during this time. Uh, but there is no question that uh, volatility throughout the world, both between Russia and Ukraine uh, and uh, in the Middle East, is a concerning development for, for world oil, oil production. I mean, remember, there are about 15 to 18 million barrels of oil that go through the Straits of Hormuz alone every single day. Uh, and if there is some conflict that uh, brings in uh, that uh, area, uh, that will have a very detrimental effect on, on American consumers. And a, a significant price spike could come as a consequence. So this is a world oil market. Um, you know, a lot of the refineries uh, here in the United States, we haven't built a refinery in the United States since the late 1970s. So think about the era that we were in in the 1970s on the cusp of the, you know, during the, the oil embargo. I mean, the oil that we were refining in those refineries was from overseas. It wasn't with American oil. So uh, the refineries that we have in, this, in the United States are still tooled to produce heavy oil from the Middle East or from Canada or from Russia. So we're in a position where, because we can't get new refineries cited, uh, and because nobody's going to build a new refinery in this country because of you know, concerns about NIMBYism, uh, we, as a country, continue to be dependent on, on for, foreign oil imports because that's what most of our refineries refine. So we are dealing, even though we are a net energy exporter, net oil exporter in the world right now, we're dealing with the situation because of a lack of investment that we're not even, in many cases, even able to refine the products that we are producing here in the United States, WTI, light, sweet, crude. And that is you know, another you know, energy policy failure of Washington, D.C. Um, that has gone on for decades under Republican control and Democratic control. Yes. Former AAPI employee here, <laughs> Teresa. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, Teresa Pugh, Teresa Pugh Consulting, but very proud to say API alum. Um, sir, do you find in the last 13 days, 12 days, whatever we are, any receptivity from the Hill from folks that might not have been open to all that you've talked about so succinctly 
that while they were not receptive to this two weeks ago, they are now. Thank you. Uh, unfortunately, the Hill's been a little bit occupied. Um, <laughs> so I, I would say I, I do think that there, as a consequence, particularly of the Russia invasion of Ukraine, there has been a renewed focus on energy reality and a focus on American energy security. Uh, and that has led to, I think, some positive uh, policy developments. One area, though, I think every American could, should be concerned about is the tragic uh, low number of barrels that we have in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. As you know, the SPR came as a consequence of the oil embargo, that and IEA and other policy developments. Uh, and the fact that we now have the lowest levels of oil in the SPR, lower than they were in 1983, and think about this for a minute, we were, we were using 20% less oil in 1983 than we are now, we are not prepared for an oil shock that the SPR was really built uh, to, to buttress against. So that, I think, should be a real concern for every American. Uh, uh, numbers today out of EIA suggest that our crude inventories at, uh, at Cushing are at historic lows, lowest that they've been since 2014. So there are real concerns about what uh, if this nation is ready for a severe oil shock. And I will say, the president's use of the SPR, you know, in advance of the last election, uh, I think was a strategic mistake that uh, we're going to be living the consequences w with for, you know, many, many decades to come. Because we do not have the supplies that we need to deal with a major oil shock that could come as a consequence of Russia, Ukraine, or the ongoing conflict in the Middle, Middle East. We got to get the SPR back to a level that gives us that kind of cushion. And unfortunately, uh, the policies out of this administration have gone in the exact opposite direction. It led me to question whether the P in Strategic Petroleum Reserve actually stood for political, um, because it has been abused year after year after year, not just by jo President Joe Biden, but by Republicans in Congress and Republican presidents as well. We have to put restrictions on how that uh, SPR is used, uh, and we have to get it back to a level uh, of sustainability if, if we're going to be successful in our foreign policy. Questions over here. Uh, thank you very much. Um, Klaus Laris from the Wilson Center. I very much enjoyed your talk, very illuminating, but you didn't notice uh, or you didn't mention alternative energy resources like wind and solar and so on. In Europe, they very much uh, think that is the future. You didn't mention it, so do you think that is not the future, or will that go up and oil and natural gas will go down over time? And uh, what time span are we talking about? Thank you. Uh, the questions on uh, uh, solar and, and wind, pro prospects for solar and wind, I think that solar and wind have a very bright future um, in the energy mix going forward. We continue to see them going up. But with world population going up by 2 billion people by 2050, and energy demand going up, and more people entering the middle class, we're still going to need a lot of oil and gas. Um, we also know that natural gas in particular is an incredible partner uh, to renewables to deal with the intermittency problem that uh, wind and solar have when battery technology has not kept up with to uh, the deployment of these facilities. So we're going to need a lot of natural gas in particular uh, if we're going to be deploying these uh, new energy sources going forward. So one thing I know, world consumes 
100 million barrels a day um, of, of oil. Uh, we expect those numbers to only increase. Uh, natural gas is the same. Those numbers are only going to increase. And it's actually going to increase alongside uh, the deployment of, of uh, wind and solar as well. So the, our argument is that we're going to need all of these sources of, of energy going forward for a growing world and a world that that's going to require more energy. A question here. Um, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for being so generous and taking a lot of questions. Uh, and I'll make mine quick. Um, you, that was a, your speech was a very rousing call to action. Uh, getting roused up for the call to action is one thing, but then having steps to follow is another. And I'm wondering with regard particularly to permitting, because we all know permitting is a terrible, you mentioned in uh, carbon sequestration, you know, the EPA has only given out the permits for the wells needed, a type of wells needed, it's only given out like six or seven in 10 years. Um, what, is, what specific steps, without getting into the weeds, is your organization taking to actually get into uh, correcting the permitting asynchronicities that, that, that are, everyone acknowledges exist. Thank you. You bet. So uh, as I mentioned during the speech, you know, we were active in uh, pursuing the NEPA reforms that were included uh, in the Fiscal Responsibility Act at the beginning of this year. Uh, we were active in both the negotiation of that and trying to convince members that it was the right thing to do. Unfortunately, when you're dealing with an administration that does not want to advance NEPA reform, and they're the ones that are implementing the law, they have a lot of say in uh, how that is implemented. So NEPA is one step. Another step uh, is that we have to tackle the challenge of judicial review as well. Uh, you know, when you talk to API member companies, they really don't have a lot of trouble getting through the, the permitting process. It takes too long, but the permitting process is, and is of course, elongated. But the next step along the way that the, uh, that the activists use uh, is, is to take it to the courts. There has to be some kind of a shortened period for judicial review of these, process, process, of these projects after they've gone through an extensive EIS uh, and, and permitting process with the federal government, the state government, and the local governments. So that's another key step. You know, I think the real challenge uh, that, that comprehensive permitting reform has right now is that honestly, the electric utilities in this country haven't figured out how they're gonna pay for the build out of new transmission lines. Who's gonna pay? So until we can get the electric utilities uh, and the rural cooperatives and others who are actually gonna build out this, uh, these new transmission lines, uh, until we get them to a place where they can agree on who pays, whether it's taxpayers, um, whether it's the states that uh, are gonna be the beneficiaries of those new transmission lines, or the states that uh, those transmission lines are going through, uh, until we figure that out, comprehensive permitting reform is, I, I think, gonna be put on the back burner. And that's what we're seeing in, in Congress today. So uh, until the, that key question of transmission lines and who pays gets worked out, we're, I think future permitting reform is gonna be challenged. Uh, and we need, we really need key presidential leadership uh, to get those folks in a room and, and to get them to agree on that key question. Because it doesn't just put uh, electricity generation in question. It, it really imperils every energy project going forward. 
you know, we're not asking for anybody to pay for our pipelines. We're going to pay for our pipelines. But when everyone has a say as to whether or not, you know, that pipeline can be built, we saw it with the Mountain Valley Pipeline. It took an act of Congress to get that pipeline built. And unfortunately, that's not unprecedented. It took an act of Congress to get the Trans-Alaska Pipeline built. The worst thing that could happen is if every energy project in this country has to take an act of Congress to get done. That's why we need an, a permitting process that makes sense so that there's certainty, both for uh, oil and gas pipelines and for transmission lines and for renewable projects. If we don't have that, we're not going to have the energy future that, that this country is going to need to sustain economic growth. We ready? Ready or one more? We can take one more if anybody has one more. I don't see any more. We talked him to death, Brigham. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Great to be with you. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a tough act to follow. Thank you, Mike, so much for spending time with us today. And a call to action indeed. Uh, we will now move into our second and final panel uh, to discuss the path forward. Where do we go from here? What are things the administration could be doing? So as I uh, get ready to uh, take the stage, I'll be moderating this. If I could ask... Uh, uh, the panelists to come up uh, as I call your name, or go ahead, Lou, come on up. Uh, first, uh, Lou Pagrassi, uh, he is the president of the Energy Policy Research Foundation and uh, has a wide and tenured experience in government, the National Security Council for Ronald Reagan, at State, at Energy, at Interior, at EPA, and has written extensively for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, to his, to your right, his left, is Tom Dusterberg, senior fellow here at the Hudson Institute, no stranger to the Wall Street Journal either, sitting down, uh, uh, depending on where they sort this out, we have uh, Jack Spencer, senior research fellow, energy and environmental policy at the Center for Energy, Climate and the Environment at the Heritage Foundation, a former vice president of the Institute for Economic Freedom and Opportunity at Hudson, an energy expert. And um, with that, uh, again, I'm Brigham McCown, senior fellow here at Hudson and director of the Initiative on American Energy Security. And I am really looking forward to hosting this panel. Um, boy. We could launch into one of these uh, talk show TV follow-up and critique of, of everything that's been said over the last couple of hours. It's been amazing. And, uh, you know, first starting off with the panel on 1973 by Arthur and how we got to where we are today and what was going on in the past, and then Mike's uh, very substantial policy speech on a lot of the realities facing uh, uh, our need for energy and moving forward. Our task is really straightforward. Well, what do we need to do? What do we need to do to learn from the lessons of 1973? How do we not repeat history? And how do we convince reasonable folks to come along? Should be a pretty simple challenge. I think we're all up for, although 
as we know, it doesn't actually quite work out that way because, uh, as Mike, I think, pointed out, uh, these issues have become uh, more controversial than ever. Uh, there is a belief that you cannot have environmental protection and energy production, at least from a hydrocarbon standpoint. Uh, so as we look at the fact that every U.S. presidential administration since Nixon has looked for a way to become energy secure, some gave it lip service, some said turn down your thermostats and put on a sweater, if you remember who that might have been. Uh, but it was an elusive goal until it really wasn't. Uh, but uh, with recent events, the geopolitical instability, stretching across large swaths of the globe, here we find ourselves. I think country C energy is a tool. Uh, it can be a weapon or it can be an economic lever. You can be secure or insecure. Uh, we find ourselves in a world that seems to be in disarray, uh, but maybe only for the present moment. We've seen energy production rise to new heights as we have seen yet our appetite as the world's largest producer of that energy, uh, more and more people seek to use that energy. Are we on the right track? Are we really living in a period of energy abundance or energy scarcity? And is that a choice that we can make moving forward? Or are we doomed to repeat the same mistakes of the past? With that framed up, uh, our energy panelists have asked for three to five minutes to present their opening arguments. Let's start with Lou, if we have Lou's slides ready. Lou? <coughs> okay, um, I'll be blessedly quick. Uh, one, one of the, the first answer to this question is, probably a lot what we need to do is to stop what we're doing now and have a more realistic view of how we proceed to the fuels of the future. First, uh, there's a lot of discussion. If you take North America, by, by the way, the U.S. will hit its all-time oil <coughs> production target. I mean, you know, uh, historically, sometime this year, probably has already. <coughs> and that's despite the efforts of the Biden administration to halt oil and gas production. So welcome to the vagaries of a constitutional republic. But you can see here, if you take North America, we're a net exporter of petroleum. Now the North American production platform solves a lot of problems. And it's a large continental landmass, large supplies of crude oil and petroleum products flow in, a lot of exports flow out. <clears throat> and what that does is, is solves a complex problem of a least cost solution. So we get the right crews to the right technology and the right refineries. We move it most efficiently through the system. Okay. Now here's a little thing about the future. If you look at where we are today, we are the world is producing or demanding about 102 million barrels a day. These are OPEC's forecasts for 2030, showing a world oil outlook in 20, uh, for 2030, the most recent one shows that they don't think there'll be any increase in demand. But they're beat by the International Energy Agency, which says that in the next five to six years, we can pull out something like 30 million barrels a day out of the world petroleum system. Obviously, it's not going to happen. 
The other question is, how successful has the transition been so far? <clears throat> In the last 20 years, we've spent, according to Bloomberg NEF, over $6 trillion in direct subsidies for wind and solar alone. I'm not talking about renewable fuel mandates. I'm talking direct subsidies, money from governments. And you can see here that the result of direct subsidies after 20 years in wind and solar, that it represents an insignificant portion of world primary demand. This is because we have a very OECD-centric view of the world. The next thing to think about, and I think Mike Summers talked a bit about this, is that uh, if you look at where the world it is, and this chart here shows you something called the Human Development Index, where you want to be is above this red line. You know, this is the, I won't spend a lot of time on that, but you can see that India, China, Nigeria, most of the world's population is still below the, this Human Development Index. What do we know about the Human Development Index? We know that your daily per capita energy use needs to rise, if you're in the lower middle category, from about 0.4 to 0.5 equivalents of uh, gallons of oil per to 3.6. That is, these countries down here want to move up here, and they need to, in many kind time, increase their per capita consumption two to, two to three times. <clears throat> the other thing is we miss the scale issue. We don't understand the nature of the scale. The red is coal, the blue is gas. I want you to take a look. We learned this testifying before Congress. You send them a big table, they don't really understand the numbers. What I want you to see here is, you can see this is just the distribution of power generating capacity worldwide. You can see Africa, practically empty. As we move along, you can see you have a lot of, you move to India, there's a lot of solar. But that solar doesn't work when the sun goes down. And you move to China, that big, for the security folks, that big blue was a Three Gorges project. And so what you see from this is the world, from a scale point of view, is still running on coal. And I want to thank uh, uh, my young colleague here, Bat Ogrel, who's a wizard with the visualization of our data. <laughs> so if you think about this, isn't it just simple economics? Right? In 10 or 15 years, food, plutonium, and maybe even sooner. Now, what do you think the people are going to want us to do then? Ask them. Not now. Then. Ask them when they're running out. Ask them when there's no heat in their homes and they're cold. Ask them when their engines stop. Ask them when people who've never known hunger start going hungry. You want to know something? They won't want us to ask them. They'll just want us to get it for them. Okay, so I, I, I want to. The reason I showed that clip is we have the, we have these millennials who work for us, right? Several of them, and I asked them, "Have you ever seen Three Days of the Condor?" They said, "No." What are you talking about? So that's your assignment this weekend: go home because you don't really have the feel of what the energy crisis was like unless you uh, unless you see this movie and what the sort of the psyche of the, uh, American society was. So <clears throat> now, by the way. I've given you a worldwide, a whirlwind tour of what we've been doing. All of this stuff, including a very detailed assessment of the IA's net zero, uh, uh, interesting discussion on the Hubbard method for forecasting oil, all of this is on our website. Come and see me or talk to Bat if you'd like to talk about this more, uh, more extensively. But you can see here 
that if we go ahead with the, what we're doing now, that's why I said we should need to stop and rethink what we're doing now, is that what's going to happen is we're going to have compromised national energy security, declining national wealth, and uh, <clears throat> a real problem with oil and gas through underinvestment. And I'll leave it there for the discussion. Thank you. Dr. Duesenberg. Okay, thanks, uh, Brigham. Um, I've got a few slides as well. So I hope we'll come up. I'm going to try to focus a little bit, a very quick overview of sort of the current and past geopolitics of uh, oil and gas uh, production. Um, we had a great introduction this morning from Arthur and, and John and um, about the uh, 73 war, but we could go back a little bit further if we wanted to the Second World War and the origins of the Second World War had a lot to do with the drive for uh, uh, energy in, by both Japan and Germany. Um, and um, that was repeated, if you, if you will, um, in, in the sense that um, um, in, in 1973, as, as we discussed this morning. But uh, the United States, as uh, Arthur pointed out, was the uh, uh, source of uh, much of the 80% or more of the oil uh, that powered the uh, Allied victory in, in uh, World War II. So um, let's go to the first slide. Um, I wanted to point out, too, that there's a, um, a larger reason for thinking about energy security, which is uh, the ability to be competitive globally in an energy-intensive economy. And I think we uh, saw the United States coming out of the Second World War, <clears throat> not only as the dominant industrial uh, power in the world with over 50% of manufacturing dominated by the United States, but that was driven by our ability, in part by our ability to um, provide oil and uh, gas to, um, to power our e economy. What changed in 1973 was the price advantage that the United States had at, uh, between uh, 1947 or so and 1973 from being self-sufficient. Uh, you, you had the onset of, of a world price for energy. And so gradually over time, that tended to erode the uh, industrial dominance of the United States um, up to the time, um, of the, the, uh, up to now, um, as Japan, Germany, others, increasingly China, were able to have uh, be competitive, at least in, with the global price of oil and gas. So this first slide just shows that we have, the United States has become self-sufficient again. We've um, doubled the production of crude oil and vastly increased natural gas uh, production. Let's go to the next slide, which allowed us to become a, an exporter uh, on a large scale of both, both oil and gas. Um, I, I would remind uh, people that um, one of the major advantages of uh, uh, competitive price, a lower price for oil and gas, uh, as I mentioned earlier, was uh, industrial strength. But you could see that in the United States 
in our chemicals industry, which grew uh, quite rapidly after the advent of the shale revolution. And you saw at the same time um, as the price advantage that we enjoyed from being uh, uh, um, uh, self-sufficient in gas and paying a lot less for gas and a lot less for oil uh, than our uh, Japanese and European uh, competitors that gradually it was a, became a major problem for those, those countries. And now, uh, in, in the present, with the Russian-Ukraine war, Europe had become too dependent on um, Russian gas. And so they have seen their, both the, um, uh, they've seen uh, a further erosion in their ability to be competitive, um, uh, especially in, in the industrial sector, because uh, Europe now has the highest energy prices, especially electricity prices in the world. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Um, fortunately, the United States, uh, through the shale revolution and the ingenuity of the uh, American uh, energy industry, has been a um, uh, become a net exporter of liquefied natural gas, sort of miraculously giving, given the antipathy to uh, oil and gas production in the United States, but uh, the, both the Biden administration and the Obama administration before them uh, at least tacitly admitted that um, it was a good thing for the U.S. to become an LNG exporter uh, and, and to uh, not stand in the way of building, uh, by and large, not stand in the way of building LNG export facilities. So we're now the largest exporter of LNG in the world. Um, uh, Qatar and um, Australia both have massive uh, reserves like we do, but they are not building new uh, export uh, capacity. Um, even Qatar uh, demands that uh, the purchasers finance, basically finance their uh, construction of new facilities. So for the next four or five years, the United States is going to be able to increase its role, uh, if you will, as the arsenal of energy um, freedom in, in the world, again, borrowing from uh, Arthur's characterization of uh, the art. Uh, U.S. being the arsenal of democracy. Let's go to the next slide. I want to talk for just a second about China. Um, China is now the leading manufacturing uh, country in the world and surprisingly has become uh, the largest producer of chemicals in the world. And that's in part uh, thanks to their subsidization of a building refinery capacity of which they have a surplus. But uh, what's going on right now, especially since the onset of the Ukraine war, is that uh, China is able to access um, cheaper energy from, its, from the pariahs of, of the world, namely uh, Iran, Venezuela, and Russia. Uh, increasingly, we're seeing we cannot uh, quantify uh, how much uh, um, oil um, China is now getting from, um, uh, from Iran, but it's probably over a million barrels a day, and it's hidden. Uh, in, uh, they import in, in contravention of the sanctions and the price caps that we have seen. So they, uh, uh, estimates of the discount for 
um, oil are all over the place. We've looked at Chinese uh, customs data and found about a 20 to 30% discount. Uh, let's go to the next slide. Um, there's an interesting um, estimate based on Russian government budget plans and their, their forecasts for what they expect to get for their gas exports. And the black line is uh, sort of the global price, if you will, what Europe and other importers are paying. And then the blue line is what China is paying. So the uh, difference in 2022 was 28, uh, China was paying 28% of the global price. And they're increasing their, their uh, imports of, uh, of gas. So that gives wind in the back to the Chinese uh, competitor uh, for uh, uh, manufacturing dominance in the world. Uh, that's one reason they have such a dominant trade position um, in, uh, and increasingly so. Um, and we're going to uh, continuously see growth in their chemicals industry, which will further undermine uh, the European economy. Finally, let's go to the last slide. Again, on this theme of um, the U.S. is the arsenal of energy uh, democracy in the world, we can see the growth in um, U.S. exports of LNG to Europe, which is the, the blue bars on this. Um, so hopefully that will continue in the future, and we can discuss some of this as, as the panel goes on. Thanks. I'm Jack Spencer with the Heritage Foundation. Now, Brigham, you gave me a great introduction, but you said I was a VP at Hudson. Now, that would have been a great addition to my Maybe that's resume. that's a Freudian slip. I don't know. But I just want to clarify that I wasn't. Um, secondly, I don't have a slideshow, so I'm going to try to make up with that for that with enthusiasm and sort of lots of this kind of stuff. So, uh, so we'll, let's get to it. We live in an era of energy abundance, yet we act like we live in an era of energy scarcity. All the policy, the rhetoric, the narrative, it's all about creating this, this, this policy framework that justifies more control over consumers and businesses in the United States. They use CO2 as a reason, they use energy conservation, or energy, uh, that, that we're running out of energy as the reason. All of the, most of the statutes that define our energy policies today rose out of this whole time, this time that we're talking about today, out of the 70s, which we've, we've heard time and time and time again. All the decisions the policymakers made were wrong. All of the assumptions they made were wrong. All the policy assumptions that they still make today are wrong, yet we still subject our energy policy to that whole regime of, of, of policy, and we need to get beyond that. Energy security is becoming an issue, and it is an issue, but it's not because of energy. It's because of bad policy, 100% because of bad policy. America's energy abundance, while not making it immune from global shocks and, and, and things like that we've been talking about, it certainly gives it a, a, a buffer. And if we allow free markets, it will respond quickly. As we heard, that's why embargoes don't work. And, and all these things that policymakers try to do, they never work. The fact is, the United States literally has hundreds, if not thousands, of years worth of energy. Um, worth, we, we heard about the natural gas, when you talk about um, conventional and unconventional reserves, we heard about oil. 
and also coal. I gave you a little preview of my perspective over there. We can't forget about coal. Coal's awesome. We should be using it. We should be encouraging, I would argue, these countries around the world who are still developing to use it. This idea that coal is going is, uh, creates all of this pollution just is false. Not whenever you use good modern coal technology, it gets rid of all of the criteria, most of the criteria pollutants. There's the CO2 thing. We can talk about CO2 in a minute, but if, we, if what we want is to raise standards of living for people around the world and increase our own energy security, we should use our, our, our coal. We have lots of it. I would argue instead of trying to manage energy markets from Washington, we would all be better if Washington would just get out of the way and allow America's energy companies to do what they do best, which is to produce energy. By simultaneously trying to manage and supply demand, Washington's doing, I would argue, more to threaten America's energy security than any foreign adversary ever could. Because if we're producing what we can produce, a foreign adversary doing whatever, in fact, they wouldn't do anything because they understand that by creating an embargo or increasing prices, our folks would just increase supply. They it would completely undermine even any short-term benefit that they would get from messing with, with global energy markets. That's how abundant we could be if Washington would get out of the way. Whether it's with efforts to manipulate prices, to compel efficiency, pick technology, or control how people use energy, almost every lever Washington tries to pull is vastly, vastly inferior to the free market, driven by consumer preference and price signals. Those are the two things that lead to energy security. Thus, I would argue if the objective is to provide Americans with abundant, reliable, and affordable energy, my message to policymakers is they should spend their time doing something else. There are so many problems that we have to deal with that our, our policymakers should, be, should, should rejoice that they can put this energy thing off to the side, allow America's private sector to get to the business of producing energy, and they can get to the business of doing whatever federal politicians and bureaucrats like to do. I will leave it at that. You said three minutes, I think that was about three minutes. You got it. Give or take. <laughs> Unless you want me to go on about global warming, I'll do that too. <laughs> we'll get to thank, it. Thank you very much, Jack. Uh, so let's, uh, let's open this lively debate. We've said or we've heard people say that, Jack just said, almost everything that uh, a policymaker does turns out to be the wrong decision. Uh, is this energy crisis that we see, and I'm calling it energy crisis, right, because uh, if you look at Europe, what happened as soon as Russian oil and gas was removed? You saw deindustrialization, you saw very high energy prices, uh, you look at our own production that has been stymied and the use of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in the months leading up to last midterm elections to try to artificially reduce prices. Are we our own worst enemy? I think I know the answer, but I want, I want to see what they say. Are we, the own, are we our own worst enemy when it comes to domestic energy policy? Lou? Well, the first point is we are very blessed, as I said, to live in a constitutional republic. So even though the uh, Biden administration went to extreme lengths to try to restrict oil and gas production, we still have private lands that have oil and gas. Texas is a good place. You can permit almost anything in Texas. That's why they have so much problems with wind power. And so uh, in, in that sense, the fact that we have states and the states have some autonomy that sort of saved us so far. But in fact, if you go back to the origins of the, 
1973-74, there were attempts. I mean, as I said, as I spoke earlier, my chairman was the architect of this 10 million acres a year. We, the offshore leasing program was started. We, a lot of things were decontrolled in trucking, transportation. And so where we are today is, I think, a failure to understand the failure modes of net zero. Mm. I, I'll, I'll leave it to others to decide whether there's any benefits in reducing CO2, but, and we seem to have a hard, a real difficult problem inviting people in. So we've, we've proceeded to do a very deep dive into it. And as you go through it, the failure modes are in the power sector. I believe EVs is going to be the largest misallocation of capital in American history. That's how bad that looks to us when we look at it. So how do you get people to rethink this? I think that's, how do you invite people in to rethink it? And one is, if you want to disagree over uh, the consequences of CO2, okay, then the first thing you should be do a, a deal is address it directly with uncertainty, which means if you're pursuing mitigation strategies that don't work, then someone needs to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, maybe we need to balance more mitigation with adaptation. Maybe we need to accept that there's a lot of uncertainty we can adapt over time. But that's a very pragmatic approach, and it's really difficult to sell. All right, thank you. Tom, your initial thoughts. Well, one thing that impresses me that maybe hasn't come out um, uh, forcefully enough is that we are in a, in a crisis. I mean, we've got a major land war going on from involving the major energy producer. Uh, we have a, a, an acute crisis in the Middle East, which is a source of, um, I don't know what the number is, uh, a very large percentage of the oil production in the world. And we have um, the, this entente between Putin and Xi Jinping, who's sitting there covetously looking at Taiwan and perhaps thinking about um, this may be a good time to uh, achieve one of his uh, visionary dreams, which is to move on Taiwan. And so um, the, if things were to worsen, which in, in the history of the world is not an unknown uh, um, outcome, um, we are not taking the steps that we need to take to be prepared for that and for all the reasons that all of us have and uh, Jack outlined. Um, so there are consequences to um, the actions that we take um, that have long-term effect as well so that some of the things that have been suggested that are wrong with current policy, you know, we need to, uh, to reflect on. And I, I look at the European experience a lot. I mean, they made a major mistake Germany made a major mistake um, in turning off their nuclear power and becoming dependent on, on Russia. And that was, uh, the European economy has stagnated basically for the last, uh, since COVID at least. Um, and that's a future that, you know, we could face too if we don't continue to allow and promote um, in the near to medium term, the use of our abundant resources. 
Yeah, thank you for that. You know, and I'm reminded too that if we look at the Eurozone from back early 2000, the GDP between Europe and America was pretty equivalent, right? And what we've seen since then is that Europe has stagnated while the American economy has grown by, I'm gonna get this wrong, Tom, you probably know, but about a third. So where we are, we have pulled away from Europe because of their policies. Um, Jack, you mentioned, uh, I'm not gonna put you down as undecided, we, we uh, from your opening remarks, what about anything? What, <laughs> what, uh, what can we learn, though, from Europe? Because Europe is doubling down, right, on their repower EU. They're not, they're not shying back from this transition to low-carbon alternatives. And let's be honest, um, we exported a great deal of LNG to Europe last year. And I said a year ago, coming into the fall, we should pray for a warm winter. And I don't profess to have any undue uh, 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 in with the man upstairs, but it was rewarded with a warmer winter. And uh, I certainly worry about this winter coming up. What, what are your thoughts? Let me say two things real quick. Let me just say one word on the CO2 thing to give a little bit of context sure. to why I'm saying yeah. what I say. I'm happy to put out there that um, you, one can be where one wants to be on CO2. Um, but here is a fact about CO2 policy, that even if you use the models that the UN and the EPA use, uh, using those climate prediction models, if the United States stopped emitting any CO2 at all tomorrow, it would have virtually no impact on global temperatures. So that's a real thing. Whenever you talk about a forced energy transition and the economic impact of that, juxtaposed against what the actual climate benefits would be using their models, that needs to be a, a serious question inserted into this debate. I would add, secondly, when you look, whether it's at the Heritage Foundation Index of Economic Freedom or other similar indices that look at the correlation between economic prosperity and environmental wellness, those two go hand in hand. So if we care about environmental issues, including what may or may not occur with CO2, the best path is economic freedom. It's not empowering in government. You're seeing that play out in real time in Europe, in Germany. Because what Germany did, it, they did shut off the coal plants, but they also put all this effort into, re, into renewables. And they saw quickly that they could not support a modern industrial economy with renewables. So in order to make it seem like everything was okay, they relied on German nat imported natural gas, and that's all fine and dandy until something goes wrong, something went wrong, and we are now laying the foundation for the same exact thing. We will, if we get, continue on the trajectory we're on, we'll become overly dependent on renewables. There, there will be, whether it's Venezuelan oil or some other something that, that ameliorates what the true impact of the renewables would be, puts us in a very tight situation that when there's the shock of whatever it is, then we're unable to to respond, so, that, so that's what I would argue. Okay, and uh, Lou, before you jump yeah. in, uh, just real quickly, and I think most of us know this, but right, it's almost like jumping uh, out of the pan and into the fire because we've traded one dependency for, even if you accepted the notion that mm -hmm. renewables could, could do everything, the supply chain, the materials, all controlled by China, which is, I think, a point that, uh, you know, I don't think is, should not be lost on anybody, but Lou, go ahead. So we, we've had a, 
eight-year project with the Institute of Energy Economics Japan. We've been all through South Asia. And it's, it's hilarious. It would be if it weren't so tragic. You go to Indonesia, Malaysia, and the top political leaders say, well, we're committed to net zero. Then you meet the head of the utility system, and he says, we're not doing that. You know, I'll be, uh, what are you talking about? I, I don't know what they're saying upstairs, but we're not doing that. We, and, and that's why you're going to be running, you saw the, the, the visualization, the massive coal facilities in South Asia, and they want more. And these countries, I mean, just think, think about this a second. In Denmark, they got, what, 5 million people? They got 2 million people on some island, they're at net zero, and they go and tell everyone about that. When you go to Indonesia, there's almost 300 million people. It's hot. Everybody wants an air conditioner, and guess what? They're going to buy it. As soon as they get a few bucks, they're going to get that air conditioner, and the Indonesian government's going to provide them the power to run those air conditioners. That's, I don't care how autocratic or, or democratic these regimes are, energy is the kind of element that is not overlooked in these parts of the world. So my question, I guess, to the panel, the audience, is we, we have the data now. We look at it. We're telling you net zero. We're not on a pathway to net zero. A lot of the pathways are very, very expensive. They're probably going to fail. How do we invite people in to have a more rational discussion about how we proceed? Because right now, it's just stunning to us because we, you know, we've published it. We've, we've traveled all around Europe this summer talking to people. And, and everyone says, well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yes, we agree with you. And then they move on. But so we're working on net zero. So come back next year. Yeah, so, and, well, and, and for the panel, from this perspective, and, uh, uh, you know, it was already mentioned that if you took all the U.S. emissions out, right, uh, Jack, it wouldn't make a difference. If you took the U.S. emissions and the EU emissions together, it's still overshadowed significantly exactly. by China, yeah. right? And while China, when they come to the West, they talk in our language that, you know, the Biden administration talks about, oh, we can work with China. You know, John Kerry saying, we can work with China on climate. They tell us what, do you agree or disagree? They tell us what we want to hear, and then they go back and build more coal power plants, and because they see energy as a tool of great power competition, of geopolitical influence, of power, what, literally, power. What do you think? Well, I think it's obvious that the, what the Chinese are doing. I mean, they're building <clears throat> the last two or three years something like 200 new coal plants. Um, and so their, their emissions are gonna, their CO2 emissions are gonna continue to, um, to grow. I mean, Xi has this, another of his visions, I call them visions, and he calls them dreams, but um, that they're gonna double their, the size of their, or the per capita income in their country by 2035, and so um, if you do the math on energy consumption, you know that alone is, is going to indicate a, a, a path of continued rapid growth. Another uh, uh, geopolitical reality that I, I, I don't fully understand is, I mean, India is also a huge user of coal. I think um, the slides that. Um, um, you showed and um, proved that. But also, um, as um, developing nations, you know, not only Indonesia, but Africa and others, uh, um, try to 
pull themselves out of, um, you know, still abject poverty. I mean, there, there's just no way that um, they can do that um, um, unless they take advantage of coal and other, you know, fossil fuels for the next 30, 40 years. You know, we're part of this interparliamentary security forum. Where the parliamentarians from around the world get together a couple of times a year. Three groups of people come out of, at the end of one of our presentations. The East Europeans, the Africans, and the South Asians. And they all want to know, how can we get off this net zero kick? So, I, I, and, and I, he's, Jack's exactly right. If you, our data shows that even if the entire OECD went to net zero tomorrow, by 2050, emissions would only be about 10% less than where they are today. I mean, it's, he's absolutely right. This is a developing world issue, a developing world problem, and actually, I don't think they're buying into it. <laughs> Can you talk, uh, Lou, you talk about something uh, that we talked about offline, which was true system cost, right, versus levelized cost. Yes, you, right. That's that? a very, so, so generally when you go around and talk to different groups, they say, look, Lou, you're not getting it. The solar's too cheap to meter, you know, it's so cheap and everything. And you've got, you know, and so, and what they do is they use the levelized cost of energy. Only in the last year have I seen Lazard, which is the kind of arbiter of systems of costs, of levelized cost of energy, start to put the uh, systems cost in their, uh, in their math. And you can look at the Volktel project. They show, which is a ridiculously expensive nuclear. The nuclear project. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's ridiculously expensive. You know, it took them, as you pointed out, someone pointed out today. And you can see some mixes of wind and solar, asynchronous power, spikes the total cost of managing the grid. In fact, there's a very interesting study, I recommend it, the American Experiment, the guys out of Minnesota. They've modeled the Clean Power Plan 2, or whatever it's called now, and they have shown that EPA has grossly overestimated capacity availability, and the incidence of blackouts are likely to uh, increase dramatically. And they've hung numbers on it. And it's a huge cost to society. So having uh, power systems that are not reliable, that run, that uh, enter intermittent, in, intermittent delivery of power is a big, big cost. And I, I don't know how the politics of that work out. I mean, maybe the folks at Heritage have got some ideas on how to organize the folks, but that seems to be a, a political problem to me. So, so, Jack, this is up your alley, nuclear yeah. power, but right. uh, what's wrong yeah, with yeah. nuclear power? Because I come from a state uh, where we used to uh, make enriched fuel, Ohio, at Piketon, right? And don't do that anymore. What's, uh, what are our challenges and opportunities in the nuclear world? Let me first say, nothing's wrong with nuclear power. Nuclear power's <laughs> awesome. The problem is policy towards nuclear power. And um, look, I have a little bit of a different perspective on nuclear, I think, than most sort of pro-nuclear folks. I reject the idea that you can subsidize any industry into success. In fact, I would argue that's one of the reasons that renewables are not very successful, because essentially you, 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 you propagate mediocrity. You avoid the, you, you, you take away the incentive for capital to fall away from the worst ideas and flow towards the best ideas. I think nuclear suffers from the same thing. There's lots of technology, there's lots of private money out there, but there's also lots of government interventions. So I would argue that what we want to do is to, to see emerge out of the United States a uni uniquely American nuclear industry, one that's innovative, competitive, and, and independent from government support. So how do we get there? I think that there are three main things that need to be done. 
And it all has to be underpinned by, I think, the willingness to let it fail if it can't be successful. I think it will be successful, but absent that willingness to let it fail, it never will be truly successful. So what does that look like? I think we got to get the Department of Energy and the federal government out of the picking winners and losers. We shouldn't have a Department of Energy that's supporting this commercial project or that certain technology. Maybe there's a role for some broadly applicable R&D stuff, but from a commercialization standpoint, picking winners and losers, get it out. Of course, we've got a fixed regulation. The whole regulatory regime is built around a single technology, large light water reactors. And that, and even for those, it takes too long, as we talked about already with the Vogel project, not to even mention some of these new, um, these new designs. The whole thing needs to be rethought. And we can talk more about that in detail if we want. But for now, we'll just say we need to rethink that and modernize our regulatory regime. And the thing that we don't really talk much about, not nearly enough about, and I think is the linchpin to the whole the success of the whole enterprise is nuclear waste management. The, real, the debate to the extent it happens at all is whether we should build yucca or not build yucca, that sort of thing. I, would, I think that the government, you can guess what I'm going to say, screwed it up in 1982 and it took control of the nuclear waste management, uh, when it took control of nuclear waste management, that undermined any incentive for the private sector to, to really innovate, to come up with the best ways to, to, to manage nuclear waste. And until we get that fixed, I think somehow we got to inject some market principles into that, bring some responsibility back to the waste managers. I think once we do those things, we'll get, uh, we, we will see a uniquely American nuclear energy industry. And, I, and to answer your question, I think it has tons of potential. I think that it will be the, the energy of the future. We just need to quit doing it the way we've always done it and say, let's try, let's try something new. What, what, what about the upstream part of the industry, mining and processing? What would you do about that? Because <clears throat> we're totally dependent on well, we, you know, we get Russia, basically. We get about 20% of our nuclear fuel from Russia. Um, and it's satellites. Kazakhstan and others. So we get a so you, when you add that together, I think it's a little under forty percent. Still too much. It's too much given the restrictions we have domestically on uranium enrichment and and and, and mining. So what would I do? Um, I think we I th I, I, w I think that we need to put maybe a ban in place for twenty years on Russian uranium imports. Um, let the current contracts play out. Put that ban in place. We need to, I mean, uh, uranium mining falls under the same problems as, as mining anything else. I mean, this administration, they're not only taking vast swaths of land off limits for um, gas and oil development like ANWR, but they're do they just did the same thing. They took a million acres offline for uranium development. So those are, you know, the same sorts of things that we see for other energy infrastructure. Hey, let, let's do this. Let's engage the audience. What do you think? Sure. Let's do it. Questions from the audience? You have a distinguished panel up here. What are your thoughts? We'd love to hear from you. Yes, back over here. Lou, Tom, nice to Jack, <laughs> Mike. Two questions. Is the deindustrialization of Europe a bug or a feature of the folks who are making it happen? That's one. Two is, what is the actual intent behind the banning of gasoline-powered vehicles in these United States? Well, on the first question, since I raised this point, I, 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 I guess it's a bug, but I can't imagine the Germans wanting to 
uh, kill their uh, manufacturing industry, their chemical industry. Uh, it's just they had, didn't think through in a systematic way uh, what the impact was going to be of the choices they made. Lou and Jack, what's the right answer? I, <laughs> Tom, I, I love you, but it's a, have to assume the Germans natural, are idiots. It's a natural it's consequence of, ex, of, uh, of you know, uh, re, retailing out your energy security to Russia, your economic security to China, and your defense security to the United States. So in that sense, it might actually be a feature. <laughs> I would say it's both. I think that, you know, we've been talking about energy facts for a few hours up here, and I think that most folks wouldn't deny a lot of what we said. But then there's the narrative. And unfortunately, I think the narrative has driven a lot of the public to support that narrative. And I think, this is gonna sound conspiratorial, I don't mean it to sound conspiratorial, but I think that there is a political agenda out there that seeks to empower um, to consolidate power over the, the economy and the whole global warming uh, movement is part of advancing that political ideology. And we see it playing out. I mean, it, it's not crazy to say, if you look at the policies of the Biden administration, that does not result in a decentralization of power amongst the people. It has resulted in, a, in more power consolidated in government and that's what's happening. But isn't that sort of the typical liberalist approach that the government can fix things, that the government, uh, if only we had, if only we spent another trillion dollars, if only <coughs> the government passed some more regulations. It's but, a naivete, isn't it? A but, lack but, of understanding the private sector. I, I, agree, I agree with that. The difference here, though, is that it's being built on something that's not true. It's being, we're, we're, we're told that we need to conserve energy, that, that we're told that we're running out of energy, and therefore we should consolidate power in Washington to tell us how we can use energy. We're told these, these things that aren't true in order to justify the policies that, so, so, so it's not like we're talking about um, urban decay, like that's a real thing. The liberal would say we need to put more money in, the conservative would say we need to do whatever, you know, we, we need to get government out of the way and let people be entrepreneurs. I think it's different with energy and it's pervasive that because everything, everything that we do in society is driven by energy, relies on energy. If you, if you have a policy that, who, that who, whose web covers everything, that's a really powerful lever to begin pulling. Mm -hmm. so I think it's a little bit different, if not okay. a lot. All right. Thank you for that. Oh. Well, I just want to say, I think, you know, it's easy. So in this group, you know, it's a pretty comfortable group. But you, I'm born and raised in California. I have lots of cousins and nieces and nephews. I go out there and the climate stuff, it's, it's embedded in the zeitgeist of their culture, right? When you talk to them, it's just, and, and also, by the way, Ira's not doing anyone any favors because all the companies are on the dole now too, right? I mean, you heard Mike Summers. He said, well, you know, we've got to, a little nervous about that coal because you, we got to get the gas out to uh, you know help help these guys get off coal. But in lots of parts of the world, I agree, coal is the cheapest solution. It's the most cost-effective solution. And if you're poor, believe me, among the African countries that we talk to, they want more coal plants. 
They just can't get any uh, uh, help in getting them built, right? So I don't know how, I, I'm, I have an open mind on this. There must be a way, how do you move society and sort of influence leaders? Okay, what's a more rational way to proceed? Even if you, even if you will say there's some risk, some potential damage from climate. Because if you look at the world, there's lots of risks out there. Nuclear war, dysentery in Africa, abject poverty, riots. I mean, I, can't, I don't know what happened. Why did climate become the only thing we worried about? Okay. Can I just make uh, one? Just one? Yeah, one more and then we'll Just, just a real quick up. point. Uh, it, another reason I conclude what I do is if you look at how every little thing that happens is justified through climate. You, we, we see, um, you know, in New York they're trying to ban ice cream trucks, certain ice cream <laughs> trucks, because of climate. Fires in Hawaii, because of climate. Pizza when ovens. See, pizza ovens because of climate. <laughs> it's just every little thing, it makes me skeptical of is there something okay. else at fo afoot. Fair enough. Uh, Arthur, <laughs> Herman. Thanks, gentlemen. Um, very interesting discussion. Um, I wonder if the problem with the clean renewables, specifically wind and solar, is, is that policymakers anticipate big transformative effects from technologies which are really only capable of incremental improvement. Yeah. I mean, when I was in junior high, in our shop class, we played with solar cells. You know, this was part of the part of the learning process and using the solar cell, et cetera, et cetera. Now, someone from Solyndra, we were here, they'd say, oh my God, we've moved on so far from what the, the solar cells that you were using in your in your junior high shop class. But at the same time, by comparison, uh, think I think about my fellow students who were using Texas instrument calculators that would plug into the wall right, right and rest on their desk. Um, and where we are as far as the transformative effect, right, of, of information technology and digital technology, um, where you really do see serious, serious transformative, even disruptive effects. And that wind and solar right now is just not capable of the breakthroughs where it counts. One is the area of energy density. You know, how much energy do you really get per unit? compared to all the other, everything else we've talked about from coal, natural gas, and nuclear, it's off the charts. And then the issue of cost. Um, and that we're really asking these two technologies, one of which dates back to the Middle Ages, to do things that they're just not, for now, not capable of, of achieving. Yeah, the, the yeah I, think, I think that's a great point. Two, two things, uh, Professor Vaclav Schmil from Manitoba talks about the fact that every time you've had an energy transition, the, inner density, the energy density has gone up, except now. And, uh, and two, um, you're right. Uh, what is the average solar cell still? About 26.5% efficient. I think by some policymakers, it's a, uh, if you... If you hit the dart, you might as well pick a target. Anyone is the best, so let's just throw at the wall. Oh, it's 2040, 2035, 2050. And I also think, as a former executive CEO, uh, it's easier for policymakers, politicians, and CEOs to hit these targets because they're not going to be in office when the bill comes due, right? So how much of this is just picking a blind target and hoping technology is going to catch up or that there'll be some... Moonshot well, breakthrough. I, I have a, a sort of different take on this. First, Moore's law does not apply to the chemistry and physics of renewables. That's the problem. But part of this is actually dysfunction in a competitive 
center-right party, right? If we had an effective center-right party, we might be able to be competitive in some of these places around the country where the governments are doing bad things. I mean, I cannot, I, I cannot explain the dysfunction in Cal uh, that, that there's no political response to the dysfunction in California. Maybe Mr. McKenna can explain it to me, but I cannot explain it. It doesn't make any sense to me. You look and see your power prices are rising. They're unable to save water in periods when it's uh, abundant, for periods when it's not. They can't fix the roads, the school. That's got to be a, a political dysfunction. Well, I wish we could. Uh, I wish we could solve all of that today. It's 1:59. We have time for one last question before we call it a day. Yes, ma'am, in front. Thank you very much. One thing I was very struck by in Mr. Summers' speech was he said, "I I project that our, my kids will use 50 percent more energy than I do." I'm wondering. Do you agree with that forecast? Is it realistic? And if so, is that even remotely sustainable over a couple of generations? Thank you. Thank you. So first, you know, this cell phone, the amount of energy to produce that iPhone you probably you might have there or your Android phone, that's the same amount of energy it takes to make a refrigerator. And if you look at Mark Mills's data, to produce a lithium battery, you have to move 500,000 pounds of dirt. That's how much ore you've got to move around. Today, today, just you know, the cloud, Netflix, all that stuff in the cloud, the energy used for that exceeds the total energy requirement of Japan per year. So yeah, I think Mike Summers might be onto something there. I mean, we will use more energy. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. If you yeah. look at certain, you know, Lou just mentioned some things, but you look at the energy predictions for things like AI, they're, ev they're way more even than yeah. that. Um, across the board, all of these are energy intensive. I think it's totally sustainable. One, one thing, if you look historically, we always use less energy previous than we do going forward. And if you would have asked someone in, a you know, in you know, 1730, could you imagine in 1830 if we would be able to produce X amount of energy? They would all say no, because humans are limitless. What limits us is, one of the main limit, limiters of us is bad policy, whether, whether it's hydrogen or nuclear or natural gas and coal. The, pe the people in our energy industry will produce what's needed to drive all of these forward. I have no doubt in my mind. Tom, last word. I, I just reiterate what Mike Summers said about, you know, seven-eighths of the world is uh, has a deficit in energy now, and yeah. they're going to want to catch up just a little bit, and just a little bit is going to take just a lot, lot of energy. Well, well, this has been a fascinating panel, and I know that we could probably talk about this for a few more minutes, um, but um, our time is at an end, and so too is our event today. But I really do appreciate both those who have joined us online as well as those of you in the audience for being here at Hudson today. And we will continue this dialogue as we search for uh, reasonable solutions to the many challenges that face us. Thank you all so much for attending. Mm -hmm.